This is Jocko Podcast number 59 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. Their screams are the worst. We're more than 100 meters away on the other side of the river, but I can hear Marines dying. Their armored vehicle hit a landmine. It caught fire with 15 men aboard. They scream as they burn alive. The radio chatter is desperate, almost hysterical. Nobody can get to them. There will be no salvation. Only a torturous death in the flames. From our position across the river, we hear every agonizing moment and can see their funeral pyre rising over the riverbank. I can do nothing. It is the most helpless, enraging feeling I've ever experienced. I have no way to get across the water to those burning men. It takes forever for the last screams to fade away. And that is an excerpt from a book called Heart for the Fight. And it's written by a guy named Brian Stan. And if you don't know who Brian Stan is, you can Google him. He's a son, a father, a husband. He was the WEC light heavyweight champion of the world. He's a UFC veteran. 11 fights in the UFC with some wins and some losses against some of the best fighters in the world. He's also a veteran of the United States Marine Corps with two tours to Iraq as a platoon commander and as a company XO. And I am honored tonight to actually have Brian with us here as a guest. Mr. Brian Stan, welcome to the show. I got to tell you, that's uh, I have not been introduced like that before. That's an excerpt of that book that I could honestly say I haven't laid eyes on. I don't even know how many years. I forget the year. We released it. Some powerful writing by uh, my ghostwriter, John Bruning, and that is a, a tough tough memory it's one of those ones that we kind of bury deep down and think about just from time to time but uh certainly when you when you at times where maybe you take things for granted in life it's good to go back to that moment you know and realize that uh whatever i may be whining about or whatever i think is difficult at the time is a heck of a lot easier than it once was and i need to be grateful get off my butt and go finish yeah i think that 
a lot of people, you know, you get you see the explosions take place with IEDs and you know the wars that we were involved in were you know the the main weapon of the enemy was the IED. And even when we made thicker, heavier armored vehicles or like track vehicles, when they get hit with an IED, even though it might withstand some of the impact, this fire start and it's it's a nightmare. And this is the nightmare you described right there. And you know, I want to get into that. I want to get into the combat that you experienced. But before we do that, first of all, like the people that listen to this show, not everyone even watches UFC. Not everyone knows about you. So just kind of give a little bit of a background on growing up. Let's take it back to Scranton, Pennsylvania. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, so moved around a lot. I was actually, so I was born in Japan. And uh, around that time when, when my mom had come back to the States, my father had left. And so grew up in Northeast Pennsylvania. We moved around quite a bit, uh, but got into sports at an early age. And I had a phenomenal mom. And, and I think not having a dad really affected my sister a lot more than it affected me. Um, but even from an early age, I, I knew that the military was going to be an option. From the days of being a young kid watching silly movies like Iron Eagle, you know, there was there was something. Yeah, yeah. You better just, not call Iron Eagle silly in front of Echo. <laughs> That's like yeah. a classic to him. <laughs> yep. But but for me, there there was always something to it that that rang as special to me. And you know what I found is growing up without a dad, you tend to want to impress every male influence you have in your life. So every time I went out for a team. I wanted to be the hardest worker on the team. I'd run through a wall for my coach. And, and, and that continued all the way through high school. And then all of a sudden, playing high school football, I started to get recruited by some good schools. And not many people in my family had gone to college. Certainly, I had expected to go to college, but never expected to get recruited to go play somewhere. And so that was a different experience for me. I didn't always handle it the best. Um, but when the Naval Academy came knocking, you know, I, I knew that's where I wanted to go. West Point started recruiting me early as a junior. I took my films, my tapes to the Naval Academy. There was just something about that place and, and I wanted to go there. So I decided before I make a decision, let me visit West Point, let me visit the Naval Academy in a four day time period. I'll visit both and make my decision. When I went to West Point, one of the football coaches was supposed to meet me there, never showed. Mm-hmm. So one of the players took me around campus, showed me some stuff, but it was still beautiful. I mean, greater than any, you know, Scranton's one of the poorest cities in America. It's not nice. So, you know, my uncles, my aunts, and my mom, the thought of me going to the Naval Academy is a big deal. I remember my track coach in high school telling me, Brian, listen, this is a big deal. It's a great opportunity. There's a lot of things in your life that can change by, by going here. I said, yeah, but, you know, I'm getting recruited by some of these Ivy League schools, too. He says, ah, it's not the same, and I don't think you're going to fit in. I honestly, I'm going to be honest with you, Brian. Right. My track coach is a bright guy. So two days later, I go to the Naval Academy and I hand them my tape. Now, they hadn't even started recruiting me yet, but those coaches were so nice to my mom. And by doing that, <laughs> I was recruited in. your mom. They recruited my mom. <laughs> they were so respectful to her. The water was there. It was so pretty. Okay, you know, I, I'm, I'm in. And I had made that decision early that that's where I wanted to go and, and focused on, on that. You know, did some summer school to take some classes to boost my AP courses in high school just to make sure they didn't have to go to the prep school first. I wanted to go right to the Naval Academy. And so that, that in, in a really quick nutshell, football was a vehicle 
um, along with my academics were good, but you know, having a, a three, five GPA and a 12, 10 on your SATs, isn't normally going to get you into the Naval Academy. Right. Football was, was the vehicle that got me there. And I could remember prom night lifting weights in the weight room with my rented tux in the locker. I was there all by myself. I had the security code. I was, I, you know, one of the only guys who worked all summer long. I was the only white guy where I worked in this tomato plant. And I would work to help pay for the high school I went to because my, my, my mom took me out of public schooling, put me in this good high school because I had gotten suspended a couple times in middle school. And it was one of the harder decisions, but one of the best decisions that, that she made and pushed me towards. Because the teachers at that school, when they saw me having this opportunity, they helped. Hey, let's help Brian get to the Naval Academy, go there to play football, but, you know, really get himself on a great trajectory. And, uh, there, there's not a day I regret it. There were definitely days I couldn't stand being at the Naval Academy, like anybody, hated it. But the friends I made there, the opportunities and the pathway to the Marine Corps, which still to this day, I don't know if I'll ever be as good at any job as I was at being a Marine Infantry Officer. I just, I don't know that. And when you got there, you're, the, the type of football that they were playing didn't really match your because you were a quarterback in high I was. school, right? I was, and so in the book you're saying that your your type of football didn't really match what they wanted to do. No, it, it was a rude awakening for me. You know, I went there thinking, "Hey, I'm going to be the next Roger Staubach," and we all did. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you start to see all these other kids from all over the country. Wow, they're good too. I had never really run the option before, <laughs> and they've got guys from the prep school that already done a year in the system mm. and did that system in high school that can run the option. So next thing you know, I'm getting moved to wide receiver. I'm getting moved to safety. Then I'm getting moved to linebacker. And I have to figure out how to play these positions. And it was one of the best lessons I ever learned as a young man where I had to make a decision. I'm going to contribute to this team. I'm not going to be a starter. I'm not going to be a star. Some of the best contributions I can make as a leader are to help mentally prepare the younger guys to play. So my senior year, I was competing for the starting outside linebacker position. And we had this young kid named Bobby McLaren, who was an animal. I mean an animal, but he was uncontrollable. He could not understand the defense at all. He was just a wild man, <laughs> flying all around, knocking over anything he touched. But he was an idiot really? at football. He was an engineering major, really bright kid, <laughs> but a moron in football. All right, so I'm a senior. I'm going to help this kid out. And we're in two-a-days, and I'm competing for the starting job, and I'm helping this kid out who's third string. And he's getting frustrated. And then all of a sudden, he starts to get it. And he's starting to grasp on. And slowly but surely, I could see this kid taking not only my job, but the job of the guy who was ahead of me who I was competing with. And, you know, the bottom line was, is I had to find a way to contribute value to the team. Obviously, I was a special teams contributor, but leadership was going to be the biggest thing I contributed. And, and that made me a very valuable member of the team that season. And it taught me great lessons moving forward, both in the Marine Corps and especially now in my job. If you aren't finding a way to add value to your organization, to your team every day, then you're wasting time, you're wasting money, and somebody's going to take that spot. Somebody will come along and take that spot. I don't care how successful you get. You can't take life for granted. Every day you got to add value. I learned that lesson early and. My football coach, my linebacker coach, liked me the most. I was his favorite guy, and he would admit that to me in our personal meetings. But at the end of the day, he told me, Brian, I get paid. I feed my family to put the best players on the field who are going to help us win games. I really wish that was you right now, but it's yeah. not. Yeah. And those are hard conversations to listen to, but if you're going to be a leader, 
you got to be able to receive that information and find a way to get better. Yeah, you know, speaking of that, so you you actually they fired the coach that you had your first three years. New coach came in, and I'm going to go to the book here. It's your senior year. Two a days are brutal ordeals, detested by every player who has stepped foot on a on a football field. That summer, our new coach Paul Johnson used two a days to make a statement. He made us start practicing before dawn every day at 0445. We reported to the field and Johnson's new coaching staff beat us half to death with repeated fourth quarter drills. We ran, we hit. None of this no contact drilling. Johnson spared no one. By mid morning, guys were puking where they stood. I love this right here. No wonder why you pussies went 0 and 11. He shouted more than once as we gasped and suffered. Coach Johnson showed no mercy. When he evaluated the team, he concluded that we lacked discipline and motivation. He made our two weeks in August a crucible designed to test our toughness and our commitment to the team. At one point, a wide receiver went down with a phantom injury. After the team doctor examined the wide out and found nothing wrong with him, Coach Johnson demoted him on the spot. So Coach Johnson came in and brought the heat. Man, I still remember... You know, back then at the Naval Academy, we had what was called instant messenger. And right. so you could leave an away message, you know, on your instant messenger. And we did our fourth quarter drills. I remember our, our starting defensive end, Pete Butte Miller. He left in his away message. He said, today I met death. <laughs> and death kicked my, you know what? It was brutal. And they screamed that at us repeatedly. No wonder you went 0-11. We were a Naval Academy football team. And the previous coach had let discipline just run awry. You know, both on the field, in practice, in the weight room, in films, you could be hurt all week, still starting the game. The things that are essential for a military academy team to win, I mean, you've got to be in better shape than the other team, and you've got to commit less mental errors, because physically, you're never really going to match up. Right. And we were making that error, and and from all that chaos, one of the, the real amazing things I learned from those coaches who that staff is basically still there today. Coach Nia Matalolo was the offensive coordinator. When Johnson left, he's now the head coach. But they taught me, and as leaders, to expect excellence. Every single drill, every film session, every weight room session, every conditioning, there was a standard. You either meet the standard or you don't meet the standard. And if you don't meet the standard, there are consequences. There's remediation. There's ways that you have to fix it because this is the only thing that's good enough. If we're going to move forward, you either get better or you get worse every day. Getting worse is unacceptable. And when when you take that mentality as an officer to what you're doing in the field to train 160 Marines to go to combat, all of a sudden that gets a lot more serious than winning and losing football games. But that 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 holds true in business, it holds true in anything. There is a standard. And if you if you accept below that standard just once, that sets a precedent that could lead to what happened before he got there. Right. And and I've I've gone back to the Naval Academy repeatedly and I've talked to the team. I actually talk to the junior class every single year. And one of the things I always tell those coaches, gentlemen, you guys are putting out a better product as officers because you're here. Your job is to put forth a great football team, but I promise you, and the staff at the Naval Academy, the officers, they see it too. They are making better leaders because of what they're doing on the football field. Before they got there, that wasn't happening. Right. What was happening on the football field was making making us worse officers. 
And so I, I still hold true. He now coaches, Paul Johnson coaches at Georgia Tech now. He brought me down to speak to the team a couple of years ago, and we had some great conversations. But I mean, he's still, he's still that same guy, still thinks he can beat me up. <laughs> Coach, <laughs> I get it, and I'm not asking you in front of your teammates. You always say you can whoop me. You have to realize now there's not a chance. But he is this, no, boy, I'm telling you, I still think I can whoop you, and he'll throw this awful, you know, right cross. It's geriatric at this point. He can barely even get his arm up, but he still throws it like he can beat me. He's game. He's, he's game. He's game. The heart's there. The body ain't got it, though. So you actually, you actually talk about this in the book. So here we go. All that effort, pain, and misery made me a more disciplined human being. It prepared me for the trials ahead as a Marine infantry officer. In fact, many of the lessons I learned helped me better prepare my platoon and later my company for combat in Iraq. In football and in a rifle company, there is no substitute for discipline, hard work, and commitment. If any of these elements are lacking, the team is going to lose. The company will get shot to pieces in combat and men will die. I learned there is no margin for error in both. And the only way to be perfect is to demand perfection and never brook excuses. There you go. That's life. I mean, you know, at that point, especially then, that is that is your world. That is your life. The military is so unique in that other jobs, you can leave at 5 p.m., 6 p.m. Whenever you go home from work, hey, I am no longer an accountant. Now I'm Jimmy. Now I'm Sarah. Now I'm I'm whomever, right? But in the military, if you're bad at your job, you're a bad person. And that's kind of how you're looked at almost. You know, if you if you know it's you're 100 right. It's true. It's yeah. true. You know, if you if you're an infantry officer and you're not good, if you're if this isn't everything you eat, sleep, and breathe, you're weak. I mean, that's just that's just the kind of environment we have. And and I always tell this story when people look at me like I'm crazy. I tell them this story. I had a Marine named James Brown, no affiliation with, with the famous person. And, and James was a great Marine. He was a tough, tough kid. And he was in a machine gun post uh, watching over a main avenue of approach. And his job was to make sure that it stayed clear. He had the best optics, keep it clear of IEDs, make sure nobody plants an IED there. And everything was bulletproof around him except for the one slit where the 240 Gulf went through. And it was hot, 125 degrees. And, and people always ask me, why are the Marines so extreme? When you make statements like that, discipline, commitment, they're everything. Everything has to be perfect. I tell them this story. It got hot. James leaned against the rifle to get a little breeze through that slit. And that moment got shot in the head by a sniper and died. And it was an amazing shot. When we went up there and looked at where, I mean, in Iraq, they had some very, very good snipers, as we know. Yeah. Right? But in that one split moment, I lost that Marine. And everything we do, everything you do to perfection, that's why. You demand perfection in everything you do because you are so afraid that they're not going to come home alive. And I had to tell my Marines this one time. They were lacking in some of their standards. This is in Iraq. I made them stand uniform inspections. Imagine their attitude as I made them stand three uniform inspections a day. And they were so mad. But in leadership, you can't do something like that without telling them the why. They're not going to buy it. They're just going to hate you now. And I told them, I said, listen, guys. 
We're not strapping. We're not strapping down our ammo and the Humvees well enough. We're not cleaning our weapons right after a mission like we should be. Not wearing our uniforms when we get back to camp because you think you're so cool because you've been in a bunch of firefights. If we don't do the little things right, it's going to affect the big things. And ultimately, what's going to happen is we are going to die. We are going to lose, or the people we're here to protect are going to die. Therefore, I'm going to do these uniform inspections until all of these things are fixed permanently. And I am totally fine with you hating me right now if that means I will deliver you home alive with the mission accomplished. I'd rather you be alive and hate me than you guys love me because you think I'm super cool, but then have you guys die because of my poor leadership and my inability to keep you guys disciplined and keep you to the standard of perfection. And, and that is something it's hard for people who haven't been in that circumstance. It's hard for them to understand. It really is. But even in my current job running a nonprofit, I, I tell my staff, every single veteran they speak to, every conversation, whether it's the 10 time you talk to that vet and you're doing another practice interview, our job is to help them find the American dream, to leave the military by their own choosing and now find not a job but a great career where they can thrive. And if we take any conversation with them for granted, they may no longer want to take our advice. They may go at it alone. They may not choose the right thing. And we failed them. People give us money not to fail them. You're paid with other people's money that they gave us to help these vets get jobs, period. If we're not doing that, then you don't work here anymore. I don't work here anymore, period. We will find somebody else to do it because that's our job. And so you've got to set that standard. But if you don't tell them the why behind it, they'll never understand that. And it doesn't mean that we have this this culture. It's not like my platoon had this culture where we were all so hardcore and there was no compassion. There was no personality. There was no smiles. As you could attest to, look, you can have an environment of discipline, hard work, and commitment, but still have a lot of love, compassion, in good times. Yeah, and fun. A lot of Straight fun. Straight up. You know what's great fun? When you go and you train and you're awesome. You know who has a lot of fun? <laughs> yeah. Awesome. The New England Patriots. Yeah. They yeah. have a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah. And you want to talk about discipline and commitment and hard work? That's why they're on the top. And they have a lot of fun smiling at the end of every season when everybody hates on them and they're raising those trophies. <laughs> so you got this section in the book that talks about what you're talking about right now. The leadership factory, right? So here, I'm going to go to the book. All the academic classes in the world will never teach anyone to be a leader. The academy recognized that long ago, and while we had to take courses on the subject, we learned by doing. The academy is structured to provide leadership opportunities in a wide variety of places and levels from the very first day you start as plebes. And this is emphasizing what you just said, and Discipline is something that I talk about all the time. <laughs> and, and you know what's great is, you know, as I was talking to you on the way over here, you know, I do, I do all these, I read these leadership, or not leadership books. They're not books it's about leadership. They're about combat, right? But combat is about leadership. So all these books, all of them, every single one of them, whether it's an ancient Roman military leader or a Marine in Vietnam or an army soldier in World War II, they all, there is one common thing that's discipline, discipline, discipline. It's always there. Back to the book. Discipline forms the cornerstone of any military team. And of course, punishment serves as one of the means to maintain discipline. During my junior year, I learned not to be afraid to mete out punishment. 
At the same time, doing so requires a balance of appropriateness and understanding. So that's the why you just talked about right there. And this, again, goes to something that I talk about a lot, which is which is the dichotomy of leadership, which is in leadership, there's, there's opposing forces that are pulling you in two different directions, and both of them are right. They're both right. It's right to be hard on your guys and maintain strict discipline, and it's right to love your guys and take care of them. You have to balance those two. And that's what you're talking about right there. That's what you were talking about when you were, when you were talking about they need to understand why they're being punishment punished. Back to the book. Bad officers try to be buddies with their Marines. There's a fine line between getting to know your getting to know the men under your command and bonding with them as friends. It is all too easy to make that mistake. At the same time, here's the balance. At the same time, if a young second lieutenant doesn't make an effort to know his men, his aloofness becomes a drag and will hinder his ability to command in several ways. First, he won't understand the strengths and weaknesses of his squads. More important, he won't have the respect or the connection needed to motivate and lead in the worst of circumstances. Men will follow other men into the worst possible circumstances if they respect and believe in their leadership. Like all other aspects of command, it is a delicate balance. So you're, you're just, everything you just said, you say it in the book. And that's why you're talking about the leadership factory. But it's interesting. This is stuff that I'm, I'm sure they touched on it in the classes, but that's the stuff that you learn. You learn it from senior enlisted people. You learn it from other officers. You learn it yourself. You work for people and you go, man, this guy's aloof. This guy's not talking to us. So it's stuff that we learn ourselves too. I'm gonna finish this section up. I concluded the proper balance here depended on the officer's ability to listen and accept input while still making it clear that he was the ultimate decision maker. That was the key. A second lieutenant couldn't be afraid to engage in frank and productive dialogue with his key leaders. A platoon becomes the reflection of its commander. He sets the example. And this is from what you just said. If his uniform is jacked up, his men won't care about their own. This leads to disciplinary issues and becomes a very slippery slope. The only way a second lieutenant can have the moral authority to set a high standard is to set a high standard for conditioning and appearance is to be the example himself. Without conditioning, a platoon cannot achieve its potential in the field. Aggressiveness suffers. Appearance breeds pride and reinforces discipline and esprit de corps. So those, that's the leadership factory that you're talking about. And clearly, those things that you brought from the football field and from the academy, you applied them right directly into your folks in combat. They helped, and, and you know, the Marine Corps has a really unique circumstance where they have the basic school where every single officer goes there. And that's huge to that's set awesome. this huge standard. Then we go a step further where when we go to infantry officer course, that course was 13 weeks long, one of the very hardest, if not the hardest in the Marine Corps, mentally, physically, everything. You don't know anything that's coming. Everything's a surprise. But I felt that my instructors during our course were phenomenal, and they were getting all the real-time intelligence from the battlefield. All the training was realistic. But in terms of how you relate to your Marines from your junior enlisted to your, your middle rank, to your senior enlisted, how you relate to the senior enlisted from the battalion who work directly for the battalion staff, how you manage those relationships to maximize the effectiveness of your platoon to make sure that you can get exactly what they need. 
they, they did such a good job of that. Then you take it one step further. When I reported to 3rd Battalion, 2nd Marines, I'd be remiss if I didn't give credit to a guy by the name of Gabe Diana, who is a lieutenant colonel in the Marine Corps now, I believe. But he taught me, he was a true student of leadership and military history. He would tell me all the time, his craft is his hobby. There's nothing else he cared about. Mm-hmm. It's what he was. He loved being a Marine, loved being an officer. And he taught me a lot about decentralized leadership, how to not micromanage, how to empower your junior leaders so that they start to think like you and you could achieve tempo on the battlefield. And, and you could immediately see examples of Marines. I, I call it, and, and I see it all the time in the business world. I call it JV leadership where I'm a great leader if my people love me. And, and they're the same leaders that will tell their people, all right, guys, today we've got to stay 30 minutes longer because headquarters said so. Look, I disagree with it. I think it's ridiculous, but we have to do it, so let's just sit here together. Now, none of their people are actually going to work motivated. There's going to be no discipline. There's going to be no standard that they're trying to achieve because of that horrible leadership. Yeah, in JV fact, they're leadership. angry at headquarters. Absolutely. They're, they're, they're bat- mad at the chain of command. Exactly. It's JV leadership, and I'm constantly trying to talk to people about that. Look, JV leadership, the first thing of it is you think you have to be loved to be an effective leader. If you are an effective leader, over the long term, you will be loved, but there's going to be intermittent parts where they can't stand you. They don't understand things all the time, or they're going to be mad at you because they're emotional. But over long term, they're going to understand that what you did was best. The other, the second major part to JV leadership is thinking, hey, I'm in charge, therefore I come up with all the great ideas. And I'm gonna make every single decision without your input and I'm gonna, I'm gonna really try hard to make sure everybody knows I, I am in charge. That's ridiculous. It is not your job to come up with all the great ideas. Some of the best ideas I received were from 19 year olds. You know, 21 year olds who had already been to Iraq once had a great, hey sir, I got a great idea. Well, I wanna hear all about it. It's, it's, it's our job as leaders to decide which are the best ideas to invest energy, time, and resources in. And that's not just, I get all this stuff all the time when I talk to different groups and companies. Well, military leadership is different than corporate leadership. Why? <laughs> what am I saying here that does, doesn't apply? That's well, it, it's too extreme. It, it is not. You're taking us too literal with, 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 with our warrior mentalities here, you know, that you do not need to be an insecure. The best leaders are not insecure. They're secure. They know that they're there and ultimately going to make the final decision. But it empowers your people and you could achieve tempo when you're decentralized enough that they feel good about coming up with ideas, sending them up to you to get back up for it and get resources behind it. But also knowing that they can make the appropriate decisions at their level because they know what your final intent is. Here's the outcome I want achieved. You get us there. You're the expert at it. That's why I hired you. I didn't tell my machine gunners how to work their T&E system and how to sight in their machine guns, right? I just told them what I wanted them to hit. They're better than that at me. Taking the time to spend it with my Marines in their different functions and aspects and talk to them about how they're, they're the expert and compliment them like that, it made them feel great. It does wonders for a leader to go to their level, see what they do every day and, and see that expert work. Because they don't expect you to be an expert in all of that. They know that, right? Your job is different. Your responsibilities are different. You need to have greater perspective. But when you go to their level and respect what they do and show them respect for what they do and how they do it, man, it's a powerful thing. 
that that could that could make a group of people so much better collectively than they ever would have been individually. And when it happens, right? When it finally when you finally get there and can achieve that, it is it is awesome. It's the most rewarding experience you could ever have. And it's hard for people to to understand because most people think, well, the most rewarding experience you guys probably have is killing people. No. It's so much different than that. So much different. There's so much more to it than that. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting too that by the way w- what you're saying right now is basically the entire book that my buddy Leif Babbitt wrote. This is, <laughs> there's a chapter in there called decentralized command I mean, everything you're saying so but it, and that's why you know you've come up in a completely different you know in the marine corps I was in the in the in the navy and yet you know you and I have both I can tell right now basically completely aligned leadership principles isn't it interesting though that some guys don't get it and they don't get it and you could explain it to them and you'd say listen man hey you don't need to make every decision and in fact when you get out in a firefight you won't be able to make every decision you're gonna have to let your leaders lead and you're gonna let the, have to let and they, and they would listen to you and you could see it going right through their head it's wild you wonder what psycho- psychologically is going on in there that <laughs> makes you want to rebel and a lot of times it's hey they got a bad review from this officer so this is their way of saying you know hey uh, you know, go fly a kite. You know, this, this is their way of rebelling. I, yeah. I noticed that with some officers. Um, and, and some of the, you know, I, I, had, I had a fire lieutenant during my second deployment. And, and he had this problem. You know, he kept feeling he had to be best friends with his Marines. He spent way too much time with them talking about a lot of personal stuff. They'd be out on patrol and nobody would listen to him. I mean, it was almost straight mutiny. And I remember when I had to fire him. And, and here was the thing is, I had to tell him, look, you're a really good person. And you are most likely going to be very successful in whatever you choose to do. So please, please remember that. It's hard to hear that now. This is a very unique job. And we are in a very dangerous scenario. We were already in Iraq and we were in a dangerous area at the time. And things were about to go south. And I had to remove this kid now before things got worse. And and it was hard for him to understand. But you can be a phenomenal human being, a great person but just not meant to lead, especially in, in those circumstances. But it, it, it's, it's some people, and I think it, obviously if they have so many years growing up in a household where it was so different from what they're being taught, that I think sometimes is the route for them to push back against this type of leadership. No, you know, I've been taught differently for years and years. It's kind of like, wow, did you just block it all out for the you know, year and a half you've been in school before you got here? With guys with all this combat experience, and not to mention hundreds of years of history yes. of combat experience, saying, look, this is the best way to do it. Yes. And saying, no, I'm going to do it differently. It, I mean, the, the military is a business. It is a business. It's run like a business. And the, the leadership there, it's about maximizing the potential of all the human beings that you have on your team. And how do you do that? Yes, it involves tactics and, and what we do is different, but the, the the personal, the small unit down to the large unit leadership is all the same. Exactly. On how to, it's all the same. And, and you go around and you talk to different executives who are having trouble. Well, you know this, you know, it's the millennials and what they do and what they do and this do. And we were talking about it in the ride here. People, the experts always want to blame some kind of process. <laughs> I think your process and your information flow is wrong and the way that you have your workflow set up in the office space, that's causing this issue in communication. 
No, it's not. You're saying that because you are afraid to have the hard conversations with the leaders who are failing. Right. Of Pe- which, by the way, you're one of the leaders. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yes. So when you're failing as a business and you got these issues, yeah, it's pre- you're going to be one of the problems. And you might need help squaring that away. And that's okay. That's okay. Well, you know what? Another thing I notice in business world is a, a, a lot of people in the business world, they have no leadership training. So they've figured it out. They've been lucky and successful and they've gotten by with good people. And then they get to a certain point where all of a sudden they're going, wait a second, I can't handle this anymore. You know, if you grow from six people that you know pretty well that you trust and all of a sudden you got a staff of a hundred people, if you don't start learning how to lead, you're going to have significant problems and it's going to blow up. And that happens from a hundred people to 300 people and then from 300 people to a thousand people. It'll happen every time. And you got to train those leaders throughout the chain of command that all have the same understanding of the fundamental principles of, of combat leadership, which is leadership. Yes. I have to throw combat in there because that was my old job. You know, it, it's funny you bring that up. There's a great example. Dan Quinn is the current head coach of the Atlanta Falcons. He was a defensive coordinator at Seattle, hired as a head coach in Atlanta. And through his, he's a very good friend of Jay Glazer, who's obviously very involved in mixed martial arts and does a lot of the Fox broadcasts. And I've worked with him and gotten close with him. And so Jay introduced me to Dan. Dan was looking to make the team tougher. And, and here's a guy who has achieved the highest level of leadership and coaching, just like you talked about. He was a great coordinator. Now he's a head coach. And he had the humility to seek out experts from all. I mean, he went to different sports talked to their head coaches, he went to the military, he went all over with humility to ask and get advice and glean experience from other people's time and leadership to include, I couldn't believe it, but here I am having breakfast with the man. Here I'm in his office or I'm in there in, in you know, their little cafeteria there and we're just talking leadership. And he's talking about some of his individual guys and he's actually listening to my opinion. Wanted to hear what I went through. My opinion on this guy or that guy is he brought me in to do some martial arts drills to make the team tougher. But I gained so much respect for that. Here's a man who's achieved the highest level. He knows he's in charge. He's not out to prove anything. His guys know he's in charge. And when they don't meet the standard, there's a consequence. But at the same time, he shows them the same kind of humility as he seeks out advice to get better every day because he wants them. Hey, Julio Jones, I know you think you're the best wide receiver in football, but there's ways you can get better and you need to be humble enough to find them. And guess what? Julio goes first in every drill. The dudes, I mean, he, that, I've watched him, works as hard as any human being I've seen in the football field, always looking to get better. Matt Ryan, the same. And look at the position the team's in now. But he has continually done that. He turned to Navy SEALs last summer, brought SEALs in to work with his team, to work with him on leadership, on accountability, and all this combat, but leadership, leadership. and bring it into that locker room and create this cohesive unit that has had a tremendous turnaround from the 2015 season to now 2016. Yeah, yeah. Now in the NFC Championship. Again, for you reciting my book, which is what you do because we got got a chapter there. It's called Check Your Ego. And you know my point is the number one, the number one characteristic that a leader has to have is humility. And if you don't have that, all those things that you just talked about, you won't do any of them. You won't ever get better. You won't listen to anybody else. You won't take any advice. You can't. That's it's a horrible thing. Um, let me let me let me get us back on track to sure. to your life a little bit here. Uh, why did you pick the Marine Corps? Because <laughs> I couldn't swim. <laughs> no, in all honesty, um, you know, I had thought for a while that I wanted to be a team guy. 
playing football and, and trying to be a CL, it's extremely competitive. You know some yeah, of the guys yeah. who, who who went into the teams and I mean physical specimens, Studs. discipline. They're incredible. They train for four years to then go and and do all these different screeners. Uh, and, and for me, not having spent four years in the pool was costly because when it came time for me to do this screener to go do mini buds, it was basically like a mini hell week for four straight days of the academy. It was tough. I mean, we broke the ice in the Chesapeake, all of that. You know, I trained for it for two weeks, mm-hmm. right? I still had a shoulder problem and a hamstring problem from the season. I mean, it was just not going to work. I was not going to compete with these guys for it. Um, but ultimately, what attracted me was the Warner racket started. A lot of my buddies were, were in the marchup that I had played with that were, right. you know, graduated mm-hmm. before me. I had talked to some folks that were in special operations and SEALs, and they talked about it, and it's a smaller team. So it's a little bit different, whereas in the Marine Corps, the leadership, you know, at very young age, you're going to have 40-some Marines. You'll go on to be a company commander at this level. You're going to get a legitimate opportunity to command large-scale units. And, and that was really appealing to me. It's awesome. Um, and, and I thought that that was probably the best opportunity for me because if I was going to try to then be a team guy, I was going to have to go into the Navy as a surface warfare officer. Yeah. And then after two years, <laughs> sorry, and then after two years, <laughs> that's rough. try to get to buds. And there's no yeah. guarantees. No. Being a SEAL is extraordinarily competitive. Yeah. And the physical requirements as officers to, to get there are really, really high. And so for me, the, the Marine Corps had an amazing appeal. And when Did you when, know about the Marine Corps when you went to the Naval Academy though? I wasn't I, I did as soon as I went to Plebe Summer because they run oh, it. Okay. They run it and I'll tell you a lot of the a lot of the people at the Naval Academy when I was there hated the Marines. Really? So many of them went there with a chip on their shoulder. Yeah, this is the Naval Academy. There's no Marine Corps stuff in it. So when we get our opportunity, we're really gonna be jerks. And we had this great lieutenant colonel when I was a senior, and we had all been selected to be Marines who told us, look, guys, this is not the real Marine Corps. They're not representing us well. We've got a bad crop here right now that are, that are trying to prove a point. When you get to the basic school, you're going to find that it's massively different. And I, I loved it. I loved everything about it. I loved the diversity of my Marines. I mean, we talk about race. Race is a big deal. Racism in our country. It's a big topic. I mean, there's constantly battles on all the, the Hollywood news sites going on about, about race. Didn't exist when I was in the Marine Corps. Men from all over the world. Dark green Marine. Yeah, it, it didn't matter. <laughs> it did it, it did not matter. Yeah. We didn't care. Everybody, hey, this is so and so, this is so we, we didn't care. We had a mission every day. We trained together, we bled together, and, and it was phenomenal. None of that stuff existed because we won together, we suffered together, and we looked beyond all of it. It just doesn't matter in the military. And it's so frustrating to see it, it matter so much here in the regular world yeah. where, where people have all kinds of preconceived things and, and some people are out there acting like they're fighting on for the, for the better of, of race relations in our country and they're making it worse because they've got their own personal agenda as they do it. It's just really frustrating. Yeah, well, I definitely in the in the military, like you said, everyone's wearing the same uniform, and the I'm sure in the 50s and 60s and even into the 70s, it was a big deal. Absolutely. They stamped it out they because did. it it, do, it doesn't matter. <laughs> There's it's it's no factor one way or the other. It's no factor. It's pretty awesome. Uh, went to the basic school. You uh you got stalled in the basic school for a little bit of time. 
and you know going through some legal stuff and while you're stalled at the basic school your friends start going on deployment yeah and all of a sudden you got your classmates your friends your brothers are getting killed and you know I, I that feeling of being on the sidelines um, I think it's really hard to explain to people and you, and you do a good job in the book that I'll, I'll highlight a couple times but uh, I, I heard this quote one time and I'm not I'm gonna throw it out there as best I can but for for women like they have an intrinsic biological desire to have children not all women but a lot of women let's say and a lot of men have an intrinsic desire to go to war I don't know why that is I know I had it since I can remember having human emotions I wanted to go to war you know I mean when you're a kid the first thing you do when you pick up a stick is you shape it into a gun and start pointing it at your friends and trying to kill them, right? Mm-hmm. So here you were on the sidelines, sitting back, and and your friends are starting to get killed. How? What did that do to your psychology? It was it was dark. It was psychologically that was the most challenging time period of my life. You've got someone challenging your character and your honor trying to say that, that you were something that you weren't. And I wouldn't allow it. There were, there were easier ways to speed up the process, and I refused. No way. I know what happened. And, and during that delay, it was a very, very dark period. And, and it was difficult. But you have, to, you have to slow life down sometimes, gain perspective, and realize, hey, look, this is going to take some time. Eventually, I am going to get there. But what, what really it turned into when the opportunity finally came to progress, using my time wisely, the war wasn't going to go away tomorrow. You know, sometimes you get this feeling in your mind like, oh man, my friends are out there dying, they're leading, I need to be with them right now, realizing, whoa, it's not going to be gone tomorrow. So don't be so anxious. Don't waste the time you have now to get better. What can I do? I'm not going to let this stupid instance hold me back from improving from when I eventually do go on to lead Marines. And so I found a way to contribute value. I found a way to get better. It didn't happen right away. You know, there was a couple of weeks where, where it was dark, where I was angry, but I snapped out of it because there's times in life where life and your psychology, they want, it, it, you want to be the victim, right? You want to feel like you've been wronged. And the problem is, is a lot of times when you go into that mode and you start playing the victim, you never crawl out of it. You get stuck in that world of the victim. You get stuck in this world that you think is all bad luck and everything's always going against you and you stop driving you know, your own life. You gotta crawl out of that. When, 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 you're, when your mind is telling you to play the victim and to feel bad for yourself, Nothing positive comes from that. Something, Nothing. Did something specific snap you out of that mindset? Did your did your mom tell you something, or yeah, you must? I talk about that. In my oh, book. that's right. That's right. Yeah, your mom. Yeah, she says, did. She, I mean, my, my my mom is the sweetest woman in the world too. But there are specific times in my life where she was extremely hard on me. Don't and mess they, with Mama Stan. They were they I'm were there. at the right times. Yeah. You would you'd meet yeah. her now. You're like, oh my goodness, she's such a pushover. Um, but there were times where she. Just, 
hey, you're going to fight this. You understand me? You're going to fight this. You're right. That's it. And, awesome. and you move forward and, and you owe, just like we all owe, the, the friends that you lose. There are many different ways that we could remember them, that we could memorialize them. Some people choose the wrong way, in my opinion. Substance, alcohol, depression, you know, they, they choose more of a, a victim mindset way of, of remembering them. Others choose, hey, they're no longer here. I can't bring them back. What would they want me to be doing? What would make them proud? I take their life for granted if I use them as an excuse to be idle and fail, right? But I memorialize them if I remember them, speak their name, and talk about them as I move on and I succeed. And, and I still think about that. I think about Ronnie Winchester, who I played football with, who died in Al-Qaim, Iraq. I think about Brett Harmon, who was killed at an NC State football tailgater before he could even lead his platoon to battle. And those incidents happen, again, while you're on the sidelines. And the other thing you start doing right now at that time period is, what is that saying? When the, when the student is ready, an instructor will appear. Well, you ended up at the uh, Marine Corps, the Martial Arts Center for Excellence, and you started training. I did. I, I ran into to a colonel named Joe Shusko, who is just this phenomenal guy, all about character. I mean, in his 60s, could outrun all of us. I mean, the epitome of discipline. Discipline, discipline. And he brought me and I started working there and I, I got further introduced into martial arts and I loved it. I found, hey, this is what I should be doing in my free time. I should be hitting heavy bags. I should be training. I should be watching tape. I need to be, if I'm not reading military history and learning about my enemy, I'm doing this stuff. This, this is the type of stuff that's going to keep my mind sharp. And then I got intrigued. I wondered, okay, I'm going to lead Marines in combat. And a lot of these books that they were making us read on killing and some of these books that, that in my opinion, are a little off on the, psycholo- the psychology of battle. Agree. I mean, just brutal. <laughs> Guy, you're going to pee yourself before you get shot at. Actually, negative. I'm not going to pee myself <laughs> yeah, at all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I wondered, all right, well, what can get me ready for that anxiety? I'm going to sign up for a fight. So I had this master gunnery sergeant who was a really good kickboxer who worked at this martial arts center of excellence. Said, hey, master, master guns. Will you train me for a fight? Can you get me a, like one of these these martial arts fights out in town? Yes, yeah, sir. I can get you one. Are you going to show up? Yeah, of course I'm going to show up. I don't know, sir. I get a lot of you officers that don't. So anyways, I convinced him to train me. Every morning at five in the morning, we're training. And I had six weeks this fight. And I don't know much, right? I've got, got a black belt in the Marine Corps martial arts program. Right? That's an arm bar from the guard, an arm bar from the mount. A sweep on how to escape the mount. And I don't, I've never shrimped before. <laughs> All right. I don't know what butterfly guard is. I have no clue what half guard is. All right. I've got a jab, sounds a cross, like, and a leg like kick. Sounds you're ready for your first MMA. And that yeah. was a black belt, you said? Huh? That was a black belt. That was black belt. I've way. got okay. a jab, a cross, okay. and a leg understand. kick. Understand. All right. So <laughs> I get it. You know, it's my first amateur fight. We weigh in, and the guy's older than me, and he's got the same haircut as Chuck Liddell, and he's pretty ripped. And so you'd weigh in the same day as the fight. So we all leave. Now it's time to eat. And then you, you come back. And so I come back and I'm, I'm warm up and he hasn't shown up yet. And there's only a little sheet that they hung off a bar in between us. And our fight's coming up in two fights. I'm like, man, this guy may not show up. So this is the perfect scenario for me. He doesn't show. He was scared. 
I go out with all my Marine buddies in the crowd. I mean, there's 50 people at this fight, <laughs> and 15 of them are there to watch me, and that makes it worse, right? And so uh, he shows up, and he's warming up. He's stretching. I'm like looking through the sheet like, oh, maybe I need to do some of that too, you know? I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, we walk down this tarp. The fight starts, and, and this dude... He hits me with the worst spinning back fist you've ever seen. I mean, slow motion, off balance. My head's so big, anything you throw it, it hits any damn way. But <laughs> hits me with the spinning back fist, and I'm starting to get embarrassed. He's coming at me aggressive, and, and now is that decision point. Okay, I, I can mentally break now and kind of cover up and get out of here if this is a little uncomfortable for me. And at that point, I kind of snap, and I got mad. And so I go to try and take him down, which I have no wrestling. <laughs> Football. He wrapped, I try to football. football he wraps yeah. up a guillotine on me, full on, wraps the legs around my waist, and he is hammered. It, everything he's got, you hear him. He's, and it's tight. I mean, I can feel the lights going out. I'm like, oh my goodness, no. And I could hear his corner man yelling to him. It's his wife. <laughs> so now, not only am I going to get tapped out in the first round, I'm going to get tapped out. To a fake Chuck Liddell being cornered by his wife. Finish him, Jerry. Finish I, yeah, him. Yeah, I can't do this. I'm not killing this happen. Anyway, I find a way out of the choke. I kick him in the leg and realize, ooh, I kick hard. He didn't like that. And then I crack him in the forehead and I split his head open. The doctor comes in. He doesn't know what month it is. And the fight's over. And and I had there was a bunch Shit. of Vietnam vets in the crowd. And they're hammered. And as soon as I get out, these dudes, these guys, these crusty fellas, throw their arms. I mean, spilling beer all over me. They're they're feeding me. They're, you know, they're putting the beer down my throat from their cup. But they got dips in there. I mean, this, this stuff is probably disgusting, right? But it tasted so good. And from that moment on, I was hooked. You know, this is this is what I should be doing. I had six weeks of a fight on my mind. If I can get used to that, how how will I deal with the anxiety of of unprepared for battle. Hey, we're on patrol. You know, we get contact. What's our immediate action? Or we're going to have a major operation coming up in six days. I have to be able to think clearly on the battlefield, direct, lead, play chess. And so I thought, man, this fighting thing could be a key. It could be a help. And it certainly did not end up being that, but it ended up being my sanctuary through it all. It was, it was kind of what centered me. I brought tie pads to Iraq the first time. You know, I had one of one of my sergeants was a pretty good martial arts. We would train in between missions. I would train my guys. See, that's the difference between the SEAL teams and the and the Marine Corps. You brought tie pads. I brought mats. <laughs> Literally. Like I had mat rooms. That's ridiculous. Yeah. The budget the budget is much, much yeah, different. Yeah, I know. It's it's like almost embarrassing for me to admit, you know. You also did a lot of wrestling drills with uh, with Travis Mannion, who's one of your one of your buddies, and so he helped you out. And there's a there's an interesting part in in the book where you talk about you and Travis are going to Brett, who you just talked about. You're going to his funeral. This is the the guy was shot at some little scuffle. And, at NC a, State tailgater. Yeah, there crazy. you go. Shot in the chest and killed. You guys are going to his funeral and the wrestling coach tells you guys to write your own eulogies for yourselves for yourselves interesting drill that's a, that's an interesting drill Joel Sherritt he is the head coach at the Naval Academy wrestling team right now and it was wild you know so Brett Harmon was a Marine infantry officer he was in 3rd Battalion 2nd Marines which would be my eventual battalion Went to an NC State football tailgater. There were some guys there drinking and driving, and uh, they almost hit a kid. 
And so they, him and his buddy from Chicago, civilian, ran out in front of the car and stopped him. And they got in an argument. What are you guys doing? You know, you guys are drunk, shouldn't be driving. The guys get out. They started a scuffle. Brett and his buddy won. Came back a couple hours later and shot them both point blank. Shot Brett's buddy in the face. And Brett went to get take the gun from him. He got shot in the chest and they died. And so it was interesting because as we were writing this eulogy, you know, me and Travis, we were so close, and he was he was a fantastic wrestler and one of the toughest human beings I've I've ever known. I mean, what we used to do to each other was ridiculous training. I mean, if as long as it was standing, I would I would just destroy him. As soon as he got sick of that and wanted to tackle me on the ground, I wasn't getting up anymore, and he was destroying me. But it would just go back and forth for hours, and instead of playing video games, drinking beer, going out and hitting on girls, that's what me and Travis would do on a Friday and Saturday night, and. It was really tough when you really start to think, what do you want to be said when it's all over for you? How do you want to be remembered? And and I remember Travis, he really struggled with this. Struggled. I mean, it was I mean, he was so loud talking about that everybody else in the plane, it was weird. And, and part of it was because we were just struggling with the fact that, you know, our friend is dead. Right. You know, for such a weird circumstance. Yeah, we could understand if it was an ID or a snipe or something like that, not this. And, you know, several years later, it was wild. But, uh, you know, Joel Sherritt, when he would give Travis's eulogy, he brought that story up. Travis would get killed in Fallujah. And I remember driving up to Travis's funeral. And, uh, you know, Travis is one of those guys that you just, you just never, he can't die. He's, he's just too bad. He's too tough. He's too smart, too good. So I remember driving to the funeral and I had my, my wife there with me and, and she was actually trying to make plans with her twin sister. Hey, we're going to be in town. We live in North Carolina. Let's get together this weekend. But her twin sister's husband didn't want to get together. There was a part of me that didn't, Travis isn't dead. Like I'm going to get there and we're all going to, we're going to hang out tonight. And I remember when I walked into that wake and I actually saw him, I mean, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. It was brutal. I, I, I loved, loved that guy so much. And we carried him the next day, but, uh, you know, it's just, it's so crazy how connected it was because Ronnie Winchester died in Al-Qaeda, Iraq. And three days later, Brett Harmon died at that NC State football game. We would go to Brett Harmon's funeral, write our own eulogies with Joel Sherritt, who would then end up giving Travis Mannion his, his actual eulogy, and I would carry Travis to his grave. I went to Al-Qaeda, Iraq, and actually replaced Ronnie's platoon and turned over with the replacement platoon commander who took over for him when he passed. While I was an infantry officer course, J.P. Blacksmith was killed in Fallujah. And I got this a little out of order, but when, when J.P. died, I found out right before I had my last amateur fight. I was an infantry officer course, and I'm getting ready to fight in two hours for, for a, a title. Travis Mannion was my cornerman. And we're in the hotel room, and he got a call, and then he looked like he had seen a ghost. Like, Trav, what's wrong? He goes, nothing, dude. I'll tell you after the fight. And we had, you know, we had gotten, I was like, no, I know something's up. What the hell happened? And Travis told me, dude, J.P. Blacksmith got killed in Fallujah. So Travis tells me about J.P.'s death. I turned over with J.P.'s company my second tour. And so I met all of his old Marines, all of his own platoon commanders. I mean, it's just, it's such a small world that we lived and breathed in. You know, and, and so in, in my little platoon commander's notebook, I had pictures of all of them. And before every mission, I would flip through. And you just think, how do I make them proud? Before every fight, I would look at their pictures and look at the pictures of my Marines. 
how do I make them proud? How do I make them proud? And I still think about it to this day. And I, I end a lot of my speeches on this. You know, they no longer have the chance to live. Who am I to take this life for granted? Because they would give anything to have one more day. Their families would give anything to have one more day. And I try to remind myself of that all the time. And you don't have to serve in the military to think like that. People look at me, well, that's extreme. Well, who have you lost in your life? What would make them proud? How do you truly memorialize them? It's certainly not through failure. It's not through being idle in life. Live a life of substance, not just existence. And that, you know, as you do that and you remember them, that makes them proud. That, that, makes, it, that makes it worth it. You know, it's very similar to that, that final scene in Saving Private Ryan where he's like, did I earn it? You know, and for those of us who served and were in those great circumstances or for those people, there's people that were in tragedies where they were in car accidents. They lost people. They think the same way. They think a lot the way they do, that we do when, when we look at life and taking things for granted um, and achieving every day, adding value. Yeah, there's darkness in the world regardless of, uh, yeah. regardless of where you are. You, um, you know, speaking of your combat tours, I want, I want to kind of dive into those a little bit. And let's take you, you take over your platoon, you're a platoon commander now. Back to the book here. During our first platoon meeting, my introductory speech lasted less than two minutes. We're going to be aggressive, I told my new command. We're going to train our asses off, and we're, going to be, and we're going to work harder than anyone else in the battalion. That was it. Short, to the point, all business. What's more, they found out quickly, I wasn't kidding. <laughs> so, you, you guys work hard, you get prepared, you deploy to... Al Qaim, which you just talked about, that's where you ended up going. And I'm jumping ahead a little bit. People are gonna have to read this whole book themselves. But you're you're basically now setting up a position on a bridge. You're kind of a blocking force in this bridge to prevent uh, enemy from consolidating on another area where there's another operation going on. And I'm going to the book. Mortars began to fall on our position. As we fought back, I made sure that our vehicles moved from one spot to another so the mortar crews would not zero in on us. From a wadi that ran perpendicular to Route Emerald, several insurgents began lobbing rocket-propelled grenades at us. The rockets exploded all around us. Then another heavy machine gun let loose. This one sighted on the north bank as well. We were caught in a 180-degree crossfire. From my window, I could see Corporal Delator and Bravo 1. They were taking the brunt of the fire, and Delator briefly dipped out of the turret as bullets bounced off the Humvee's armored skin. Then I saw his hand pop up above the blast shield holding a video camera. It takes a rare kind of cool to do something like that. In combat, an infantry platoon's first task is to achieve fire superiority over the enemy. To do this requires pouring it on the insurgents until they are forced to either disengage or go to ground. Once they're either driven, off, either driven off or pinned in place, you've gained command of the fight and can dictate what happens next. Even with the tanks, because I failed to mention you had some tanks, some army tanks with you, and, and you, uh, throughout the book, have the same deep love for tanks that I have for, <laughs> for army tanks, marine tanks, but I, I love tanks. Even with the tanks, in this case, we didn't have the firepower to gain control of this battle. There were too many insurgents shooting at us from too many different places. We needed some help. 
I reached for the radio's headset, began calling airstrikes. Within minutes, Huey Cobra gunships thundered in on scene to deliver deadly accurate Hellfire missiles into targets we identified. So was this situation here, was that like your first big combat scenario? It was. It was. And the thing that made it so difficult was there was another platoon assigned for that mission. Right. And, and they got stuck they got, in the they mud. They got stuck in the mud, literally, <laughs> they got stuck right? in the mud. Right. Stuck and in the mud. And, and so we didn't get the opportunity to do aerial reconnaissance. We, we didn't have the opportunity to look at overhead imagery of this terrain. We had nothing. I had 15 minutes. Hey, if they're not there in 15 minutes, you're a go. So in that 15 minutes, I'm briefing my guys. We're yeah. getting ready. We're Now we're meeting. This, this tank crew is from Boise, Idaho. We'd never even met them. I met them the day before. My guys had never worked with them before. Yeah. So there was a lot of confusion that took place just in the, in the route up. And as we got settled and started to identify targets, and as you know, in that scenario, the acoustics and, and yeah. the movement, the amount of people, we are the most precise military in the history of this planet. So we not only have to identify where is the gunfire coming from, what caliber do I believe they're firing back or at us with? Because that dictates what caliber I'm allowed to return fire with, depending on where they're shooting at me from. Are they in a dug-in position north of the river? Are they shooting at me from a building where there's civilians around? Are they shooting at me from a wadi where now I I can drop hellfires on them? I can hit them with tanks. That's a lot going through your head when you've got four vehicles, two tanks, and aircraft you're trying to control as a 24-year-old kid, and everybody's waiting on you to say what's coming next. Just like in every vehicle, there's another kid in there directing everything they're doing. And, and, and that, is, that is all part of it. But that, that was our first, our first time. When Delatore, I don't put in the book, but what I said to him over the radio, I mean, I, I verbally almost killed him through yeah. the radio for doing it, that wild son of a bitch. I, I've told this story on the podcast, but this, I had a similar story, and I'll tell it again right now, because Mikey Monsoor, who ended up getting killed in, in Ramadi, Medal of Honor, uh, I went to go to his little station where he was and the guys were like, hey, did you see Mikey's video? And I was like, no, l- l- you know, and they go, go take a look at Mikey's video. So Mikey was a, uh, a heavy weapons gunner and f- carried the Mark 48. And so I go back into his little word in Camp Corregidor in Ramadi. And I go back into his little hoochie he built for himself. I'm like, Mikey, let me see your, let me see your video. And he goes, oh, Roger that, sir. So he pulls out his little <laughs> camera and he shows the video and there's a massive firefight going on in the Mulab district of, of Ramadi. And he's got the camera up, and you can see it duck down or go up. And he's, he's filming everything, and he gets done showing me. And, and at one point in the in the video, he he turns the camera at himself, and he goes, "It's the moolah," which was just classic Mikey. And then, so he gets done, and of course, I'm all hardcore, and I go, "Hey, Mikey, bro, what are you doing out there? You know, you're in a firefight. You need to be on your pig gun, getting rounds down and killing bad guys." He's like, "Sir, I, I'm sorry, I was." I was Winchester. <laughs> he had no more ammo yeah. left. He, had, he already dumped a thousand rounds, and I was like, oh "All right, Mikey, you're good. You know that you're fine. You can uh. video all you want if you go Winchester." But yeah, I was thinking that when I read that, I was like, "You probably weren't too happy. Oh not too God, happy was, about that." I was so mad, so mad. Uh, another thing, let me just give you this prompt, and you're going to hear this too when when you when you get off this podcast, and people are going to hit you up on social media. You're going to hear from young so you're going to hear from soldiers and Marines that are gonna ask you questions because they listen to this and they get knowledge from it. Is there anything that you didn't expect 
that you wish somebody would have told you going into that first firefight for someone that's in basic training right now or, or at the basic school right now? Anything that you, piece of advice you'd give them? Yeah, you know, a few things. You know, one, don't go in there guns a-blazing right away because in, in that circumstance, the sound is actually one of your better indicators of where the gunfire is coming from because when that heat is blazing, you're not going to see a muzzle flash. Right. It just doesn't exist, right? The other thing is when, you're, when you are keeping your vehicles mobile, that doesn't allow you to lock in on a T&E system mm. with a heavy machine gun. So you've got to be smart in the increments that you move in and the formations you move in and make sure that your, your machine gunners have drilled that. We would, do, drill. we would do T&E drills till my guy's hands bled. And not just the, the primary machine gunner, everybody in that truck. So if one goes down, the other comes up. So that when we moved them, they can quickly get back on that same target. Because basically what that became a game of is you suppress that position with a 240 golf or a medium machine gun until I can talk the tanks on. And then the tanks, they don't miss. It's all computer. Yep. It's like a video game. Yep. And with dug in positions, just aim a little bit lower and watch the shit fly. Mm-hmm. Excuse my language. Um, but... That, that was one of the problems. When, when we went in and we started receiving some gunfire, everybody started shooting fire at where we could identify with, but then all of a sudden we're getting shot at from other positions. We can't really tell because of the acoustics until somebody actually hits us. Oh, wait a minute, we're getting hit from back here too. Right. And then some of the increments my, my drivers would move in, they moved so much that it was no longer a small adjustment on the t for that machine gunner. Now they've got to get out of the turret, exposing themselves to work that thing in. And because of collateral damage, you can't just work it in, send some rounds down range. Oops, I hit the building 10 feet away. You're not allowed to do that. You've got to get that sucker into where you see it on the site and then you can start sending rounds down while that guy gets to shoot at you because you're so concerned with collateral damage. Right. And so drill, drill, drill because a mortar dropping on the top of a, of a Humvee is not a good thing and they are more accurate than you realize. These... The enemy out there has been launching mortars and indirect fire for decades where you get a little bit of ammo to do it on range 400 out, mm-hmm. you know, out, out, out in the out in the palms for Marines, that is. Right. These guys get to do it every day for real. Yeah. And you know what? They don't even have to be good. They get lucky one time and and human life doesn't mean anything to them, but it means everything to us. So they get lucky one time and there's there's that's the way it goes. That's the way combat is. Um. So you get done with that and and tank hits an IED. You need to find out what's going on and basically there's a there's a burning Abrams here going on. Um, suddenly a huge explosion drowned out all other battle sounds. The ground rolled and shook as if the fault line had suddenly collapsed beneath us. Ahead, a maelstrom of sand, dirt, smoke, and flames boiled skyward. Before I could even ask, Sergeant Peterson's voice came over the radio. Mortar hit one of the tanks. My column braked to a stop. The explosion morphed into a dry into a small, dirty brown mushroom cloud over Staff Sergeant Plumkey's M1. No way a mortar did that. That had to have been a massive IED. Luke Miller called over to me. I have no comms of them. So now you radio for a medevac. You're trying to find out what's going on. The tank's on fire. And here we go back to the book. I took a deep breath and ran for the burning Abrams. I took only a few steps before I saw Robertson frantically waving back at me. Sorry, waving me back. Just then, a line of bullets stitched across the sand about 10 feet ahead of me. 
I executed my best football shuttle run and dashed back for cover. Bravo 3 laid down suppressing fire, which allowed me to get across the open space on my second attempt. So that's cover moving. Another thing, chapter in the book, something I talk about all the time. This is the fundamental this fundamental tactic. That's, the, that's what it is, cover and move. Then you guys are doing it right here. When I reached Robertson, he shouted, we still got two wounded in there. We had to get the men out quickly. I climbed onto the tank. Miller following a short time later. The incoming fire was heavy, and more than once we had to duck behind the turret. So, getting your getting your game on, Brian Stan. <laughs> yeah, the, the funniest thing about it was I was trying to maintain a low profile when I got in the tank. There's things, there's little right. micro things you can hide behind, and the drivers, the the person deepest in that thing, and and we couldn't get him out. He was the last one, and and he was a bigger guy, and I'm I'm trying to lift. Him. I'm a strong dude, and I lifted weight till I was in Iraq, and I was a strong, bigger guy than I am right now. Couldn't get him out. And I couldn't, I couldn't understand why. And he's looking at me. He's, he's got blood over me. He's like, why is this taking so long? And, and, and he doesn't say it that clear. I mean, he's, he's out of it. I didn't know at the time he was paralyzed from the chest down. Yeah. And so I realized the only way I'm getting him out is if I get my legs underneath me. And that's going to create a target. And so <laughs> you know, we think sometimes we think some silly things in combat. And I just thought, look, if I'm going to get shot by these guys, what's the last thing I want them to see before they hit me? And that's my rear end. So when I hopped up, I, I faced that right towards him. But I honestly think I think what saved me, you know, you, you'll talk to, to people that hunt and they talk about when they get that perfect buck in their sights, huge rack. And it's such an easy shot, but they're so excited that they pulled a shot and they miss. Well, when I've got a Kevlar helmet on, I look, who's seen Spaceball? Oh, yeah. I mean, you can see me right now. It's just his headset. When I've got a Kevlar on, I mean, if someone's trying to snipe me or they're trying to shoot at me with a mini machine gun and they see, they're like, oh, man, I got this, dude. They missed. And I squat. I was able to pull him up. And we literally, you know, we, we almost collapsed off the tank and, and landed on top of another guy and got him down. Um, but the only thing I could think of, I mean, obviously grateful when we landed. Hey, I don't think I got shot. Mm. Did you get hit? He didn't get hit, and we were able to get him out. But that was that was what I think happened. Is sometimes you just get lucky, and I think I presented such a big target. Yeah. Whoever was behind that trigger just straight blew it. Yeah, that's a nightmare too. I'll tell you when when this enemy sees a downed vehicle, it is like a bullet magnet. The fact that you survived that is ridiculous. And yeah, it must it's, it's a miracle and luck and everything else because when when the enemy sees a target like that, man, they just pour fire onto it because they know they're creating a total catastrophic situation for us. And they almost always have a camera on it too. Yeah, that's I mean true. they are they're did that they ever pop study up on film? There? It it didn't. I couldn't find it, but they study film like NFL teams study film and sometimes you find their footage where they didn't even attack you they're just watching what your response was to see what they're going to do next yeah people underestimate the evil and the detail that they go through maybe Ahmed the sniper decided to delete that video because he was going to get in so much trouble yeah, for yeah. missing the big head in America he's like how did you miss this guy look at the I size of that head <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you call in Actually, you call in uh, helicopters. They come in under fire. Don't take any hits. Somehow, miraculously. I still have been, I have not been able to find who was flying that Huey. I never was able to find out. And I I mean, I I wish I could. 
that that guy who landed because a whole squad was taken out a few clicks to our east and there was no medevac birds. And this guy, I mean, we laid down the butterfly trigger so that he could land, but man, he showed some guts. He would have been fired had they got hit mm-hmm. and had that halo going down, but he didn't care. He knew there was a Marine there that needed to get out and needed to get out now or else he was done. And and he landed, got him, and lifted off, and I never saw him again. I'm, I'm telling you, that that's that's a real hero. That was a Marine Corps it was a Marine helicopter. Corps pilot in, in, a, in a Huey, of all things, yeah. a Huey. Um, that took some stones, and I wish, I wish I could find that person. Well, he I might hope, hear this podcast and reach out. I hope out. so. I hope so. Now, you get that back-to-base, hellacious run, and you guys get back. Yeah, great, we survived. And then you get retasked. You got to go bring... Ammo, weapons, or sorry, ammo, water, fuel, back up there. Mm-hmm. And this was an interesting. I, I got this, and I kind of brought it up earlier. But back to the book. Just before we rolled out, my alpha section arrived back at Al Qaim after a very dull day covering the jump-off point for the assault force tasked with crossing the Euphrates. They'd encountered no opposition. And my Bravo section, Marines quickly busted out the stories of our busy day, much to the jealousy of the rest of the platoon. This is what I was trying to explain earlier. So these guys, you know, these guys are in a crazy firefight, almost get killed. They got guys getting wounded. They come back. The other other squad ha- had no action. And what are they? They're jealous no, and mad. <laughs> Alpha section was so full of aggressive, angry Marines who wanted nothing more to get into the fight. They lobbied to go out on this run, but I vetoed the idea. Sergeant Pete's men knew the terrain now, and we needed that experience to shepherd the two trucks to the bridge. I told my alpha section they'd have plenty of opportunities in the days to come, but I knew as we left the wire, they remained on the base frustrated and anxious. That just tells you what the Marine Corps is they all about. hated me that night. Oh, I'm sure they hated did. me. And then, okay, so you do that. It's another hell run. And again, I'm not going to read your entire book. People can buy this book um, and read it. But when you get back again, another just crazy run. When you get back, guess what? You got to go back to the bridge again. That's good times. (laughs) So here you go. Back to the book. We're going back to the bridge tonight. I started. Alpha had sat out the last couple fights. They were fresh and eager and ready to go in the fray. Right now, Bravo section had all the bragging rights, and that was driving Francis's men nuts. When I broke the news, I like this part. When I broke the news, I saw no fear in anyone's eyes, just anticipation and excitement. Be careful what you wish for, I thought. So, again, Marines are fired up to go. And you go out again, and this one again goes sideways. You're, you're using up all your nine lives. Oh, man, this, this one got ugly quick. And, you know, we expected it to, but there was, there was things working against us a little bit in that we had to go up there. The tank that, that, that had the catastrophic kill days earlier, we had to go up there and recover. Yep. You can't leave that in the battlefield. Nope. And so I had never even, I had never known what a Mike 88 recovery vehicle was. I learned that in Ramadi as well. Yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a tank with no guns, and it's basically, it, it's, it's a mechanic vehicle. They go fix the other tank, or they tow, tow it. Them. And so we were going to meet a tank section, so two regular Abrams tanks, plus this Mike 88 tank recovery vehicle in the middle of the desert. Here's, here's your grid. We'll meet there. I'm going to kick my order there. 
I've never even met these Marines before. Hey, by the way, here's your introduction to my alpha section, by the way, too. We're going to head straight north and try and catch them by surprise and, and get right up to the bridge. But I told them, look, this area has been heavily guarded, so be prepared. Well, this master sergeant who's driving the Mike 88 lets me know, hey, sir, just so you know, once we get on that asphalt, this thing is only going to go about 10 miles an hour at best. What? That's just hard. Wait, what? We're good on sand, but we don't go very fast on, on asphalt. I'm like, well, you don't want to go on sand. You know what they bury in sand for us and what they have waiting for us there. So, man, we hit the line of departure. We head north, and, and they opened up on us. And that Mike 88 just crawling, crawling. <laughs> and my section leader, Staff Sergeant France, his vehicle gets hit with an RPG. Just missed by an IED, but the back of the vehicle's on fire. And and when we're getting hit, the tanks start returning fire. And here's another really good lesson for, for young officers and, and, and just young service members in general. When you're fighting at night and you've got night vision goggles on and, and tanks are returning fire into these buildings, right? They were shooting down on us in these buildings, shooting us through windows. So the tanks are identi- we're identifying targets and they're taking them out. The debris, it's heavy. The, the material that these buildings are made of, it's very heavy and it blinded us. Couldn't see now because all the damage the tanks did. And my lead vehicle blew the turn. Mm-hmm. Back of the vehicle's on fire. They blow the turn. So we all blow the turn and link back up. And now as I look down the block ahead, I could see these lights blinking, which typically tells us it's signaling an ambush. They're expecting us to go that route. <sighs> it's now decision time. And you got to be quick. So at that time... We're about to, we're going to, hey, let's turn the convoy around. Let's hit the turn where we know we're going to get right to the people that need us, right to that down tank. Let's fight our way through this kill zone. Let me call in some airstrikes. That time is when they let loose those suicide vehicles and one got through our perimeter. And man, I've, I've, one of the Marines actually filmed that explosion. And, oh man, just a horrible, I mean, I, I heard that explosion and just the first thing went through my head. I just got five kids killed immediately it's the first thing that went through my head radio silence and, and everybody's waiting for there's no crying there's no mourning there's no timeout there's no hey Steph and robertson you take over no i mean after that thought my next my next thing needs to be me giving orders out of my mouth and moving people forward because we don't have time to mourn right now and and so immediately i set a perimeter with the tanks i, I established which vehicle is going to be the tow vehicle for our down vehicle where the casualty is going to go where's the corpsman and i get out of my vehicle and i push that's what leaders do we go to the point of friction where's the point of friction and that was my vehicle that was just hit with a suicide vehicle man i get there and on top of it is this 22 year old kid jeff lampson who's built like a number two pencil right he was just in this vehicle I mean, this vehicle is destroyed. How he's conscious, I don't know, but he's on top of it, pulling our gunner out of the turret who's got a piece of shrapnel in his head bigger than that book. Everybody in the vehicles, everybody's wounded, but Staff Sergeant Francis comes out and the whole side of his face is melting. He's like, sir, we're going to be good. We're going to be, I was never more relieved in my life. They're still getting shot at. Francis is basically walking, but he's not totally conscious yet. There's like bullets <laughs> hitting on the guard. Like I got to grab him, put him behind the vehicle for a second because he's out of it, of course. Mm. But man, to, to see Lampson, this kid who actually, you know, had a little bit of an attitude at the time. Was one of the guys I had to correct an awful lot. Hair's a little too long. He tried to grow a mustache. He ended up in a peach fuzz. I mean, he's a kid. 
You look at the, I mean, you would never imagine that this is a warrior, but in this time of need, I'm telling you, man, he was saving lives. And it was so humbling and so motivating to see that. And we were able to, we got everybody in that Mike 88, eventually got the tow, got out of there. And I mean, we called in a massive airstrike and, and, and we won, but we didn't pitch a shutout. That's for sure. And, and the, the hardest part of that was when all my casualties are loaded on, you have, we're not doctors. We have no idea. When you see a guy with shrapnel out of his brain like that, you think they're done. So my Marines, they think we may have lost two or three of these folks, and they're down. And as far as I know, we're out there to fight for the three, four, five, that six was, That was gas, right, that had was. shrapnel in his head? Yeah. Was, he, was he walking wounded? Was he? So he would, he would come to. He got shot. As Lampson was pulling him out of the turret, he got shot again in the elbow. As we were pulling him out, and we got him to the medevac, and, and he was just, he was, I remember he was, he was cursing. I can't believe I let them get us. I can't believe I let them get us. Blaming himself for the suicide vehicle, getting to the vehicle. And I told him, it's not, it's my fault. It's not your fault. And, uh, but at least he was talking. Yeah. But, I mean, this, I, you know, this is, this is pretty freaky when you see a piece of metal in someone's head just like this. And I don't, he couldn't see himself, and I, nobody wanted to tell him. Nobody <laughs> wanted to say, hey, reach up and touch what's in your brain right now. Um, but he was gone. I mean, once he left that day, we didn't see him the rest of the deployment. I didn't see him until, until I had gotten back. And the craziest thing is we reunited for an episode of Ultimate Insider with the UFC, and I didn't really know what they were after. And this, this producer you know, asked me if I could get this guy there. He was going to do a story. It was really going to be honorable to him, this and that. And, and it was, right? But at the same time, he's sitting us next to each other and he's asking this Marine, hey, do you blame Brian Stan for this happening? You know, do you blame this for happening? I mean, it was, it, was, it was dark and it was difficult. It was, it was hard for both of us, man, because, you know, for Gas, it, he lived, right? And, and he's got a family now. But the, the amount of headaches, the piercing headaches this man struggles with, you know, in and out of comms, try and text him. I don't know, you know where, where his number's at. Um, he's a great warrior great dude but the pain he lives with every day i mean that's never going away he had i think four brain surgeries after that four brain surgeries unbelievable and he was blaming himself crazy warriors and you know you you kind of wrap up that here going back to the book our unit three two marines is known as the batillo bastards In 1943, the battalion took part in Operation Galvanic, the invasion of Tarawa. Batillo Island was the main target of the landing force, and the Marines faced an entrenched enemy with pre-registered fields of fire on the beaches. For those of you that don't know what that is, that's an actual nightmare when the enemy already knows where their rounds are going to land when they fire them. It's a worst-case scenario. The first assault waves were nearly wiped out by machine gun and mortar fire as they waded through the lagoon onto the narrow beach. It took 76 hours to clear the island, which was barely 2,000 yards long and a few score wide. Over 3,000 Marines and sailors died or fell wounded during what became the most ferocious close quarter battle ever fought by the United States Marine Corps. That was the legacy of my unit. A legacy of determination, heroism, and stoic resolve in the face of unimaginable adversity. On May 10th, 2008, my Marines proved 
they were cut from the same cloth. Indeed. It's so humbling when you watch these young men from all different walks of life. You know, some of them only citizens in the United States for a couple of years at that point. Really diverse backgrounds. I mean, it's not a gang full of white people. I mean, it's, it's very diverse, but I mean, they don't care. And man, when they're getting shot at, there is nobody ducking for cover. Nobody. They are getting after it. Their, their love and care for one another, for the mission, for people trying to destroy their way of life. It, it, it's, it's awe-inspiring to, to watch their selfless acts. I mean, what they'll do. And, and, and this was more, obviously, direct engagement against an enemy, right? But, but there's, I've seen them, you know, just like Lamson was willing to sacrifice himself to save Robert Gass, right? I've seen Marines do the same to save innocent Iraqi kids. The same care that they had for one another, they had for the people that they were there to protect. And that gets lost a lot when people talk about these wars. It, it's, it's become cool to paint our military like we're, we're this brutal force that's wiped out you know, all these people in these different countries. I mean, these, 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 were men, these were men who were such great professionals but under the most extreme circumstances, understood that they could lose their life and that was 100% acceptable to them if that meant saving the guy next to him. And, and that, it's hard for me to meet somebody like Michael Strahan or a football player, a famous person, right? They're all impressive people, but it's hard for me to meet someone like that and be like, oh my God, can I get a picture for Instagram? When, when you've been around 19, 21, 20 year old kids. And, and these kids don't come from rich backgrounds, right? They didn't have a whole lot. There was a reason when, the, when our nation was in two wars, they decided to sign up and be infantry in the Marine Corps. It was, they, they will forever be the, the, the greatest people I've ever been surrounded with. Yeah, you know, uh, I talk about that all the time. The fact that when we were in Ramadi specifically, you know, here we were, the special operations guys, the Navy SEALs, whatever. We, all of us, all of us guys, we just had such admiration and love for the Marine Corps and for the Army soldiers that we work with. Those guys, like you said, and, and for us, we're sitting there, we're going, man, we've got, we've got infinitely more training, infinitely more training than a grunt has that's just the way it is Absolutely. like you talk about the budget we used to shoot more rounds in a week than a marine corps company would shoot in their workup no kidding like we i saw the numbers so we get infinitely more training we get better gear and yet you go down to the government center in ramadi or you go down to cop falcon and you look at those soldiers and marines that are getting after it every day and that's why we just had nothing but the utmost highest respect for those guys and they knew it that was some nasty fighting down there too nasty fighting in ramadi yeah i'm going to take us back to the book here an amtrak a lightly armored amphibious vehicle first platoon 325 struck a landmine only a few hundred meters from our position so this is another operation that you're out on and this is where we started this uh, 
day off. We heard the explosion, saw the smoke and flames rising behind us, and then heard the cries for help over the radio. We couldn't go to their aid. The bridge had not yet been cleared, and we were almost certain it had been mined by the enemy. Besides, we couldn't leave our blocking position without exposing the left flank. The track burned as 325's fellow Marines and my friend and mentor, Lieutenant Diana, from our weapons company, frantically tried to free the men trapped inside. Inside Alpha 3, I could see this color drained from my men's faces. They looked absolutely stricken. Then the track's ready ammunition began cooking off. With each detonation, I could see my men flinch. I ordered everyone to face south. I didn't want my men to see what was unfolding. Hearing it over the radio was bad enough. Five Marines died inside the track. Everyone else inside suffered wounds of varying degrees. The driver was pulled from the wreckage, his face bloody and missing teeth. The explosion had slammed his head against the vehicle's front console. Another Marine emerged with his uniform on fire. Quick-thinking men nearby got him on the ground and put the flames out with a fire extinguisher. Of all my experiences in combat, this is the one that haunts me the most. The feeling of complete impotence in the face of such a profound tragedy scarred us all that day. Gabe Diana had actually served in Lima 325. It's a reserve unit out of Columbus, Ohio. Before he became active duty and then became an officer, he was an enlisted with 325. And I remember when, when we were starting this operation and 325 came to our base, him bringing some of these, these guys. Hey, man, I man, he grew up with them. I mean, these were his brothers. And now they were firefighters. They were police officers all brought together for this mission. Man, it was brutal, absolutely brutal. And I, I, I remember hearing a story about this woman from Columbus who they had lost, I think it was over 20, I think it was around 22 Marines from Lima 325 during that deployment. Damn. And she decided to paint these beautiful murals, murals of each one. And they were so nice that the Marine Corps Museum for a while put them right in their foyer, right? As soon as you walk into the museum, there they were, and they were big. And I, I, I remember hearing the story, and then I was doing a shoot with the UFC and the Marine Corps when the Marine Corps was advertising with the UFC, and, and part of the shoot was going to be us as fighters and then with the Marines going to the Marine Corps Museum, and I was kind of, you know, both sides of the fence on that. And we walked in, and they were there, and I didn't know. I didn't expect it. And it was really tough because here I am, you know, I'm, I'm around these Marines and I'm around, you know, some of my buddies, Rashad Evans, Forrest Griffin were there. And I mean, as soon as I walked in, man, my eyes filled up with tears. Yeah. You know, being, getting the opportunity to, to meet some of these men very briefly, then we set off and go. And because of my relationship with Gabe Diana, who was my mentor at the time and knowing what he went through that day, childhood brothers of his and, and, and him also being helpless. Ugh. And nothing's fair in combat. Yeah. We know that. Nothing's fair. And and you don't have the choice. Again, you don't have the choice. That gets cleared on. That force continues to push west so that we could finish the mission of this operation. We got to continue providing our blocking position. And that's it. If you lose focus, more of that's going to happen. It's, it's, it's a difficult thing to deal with, but that's what we signed up to do. 
that that's why we have an all-volunteer force and it's the greatest military force this world has ever seen. And it's unfortunate, but part of it is dying. We die in battle so that the innocent people here that live in America don't. And it sucks and it's painful. But at the end of the day, we all, we know. When we sign up, we know that that is a possibility. It is indeed. Now, you had... Nine guys wounded from your platoon? Is that right? From that from that whole deployment? From, from that couple days. Okay, yes. Yeah, here we go. Yes. Nine men in a week. Yeah. Here, I'll go to the book. But some of them were the reservist tankers that weren't technically mine. But yes. Got it. The loss of so many Marines under my command had eaten away at me, almost to the point where I suffered a crisis in confidence. Nine men in a week of combat. What had I done wrong? What had I done wrong? What lessons could I learn? My mind obsessed over those questions. Inside the COC, I braced for the shitstorm. Captain Ford Phillips, my company commander, spotted me as I came through the door. He swiftly took me aside. Here it comes, I thought. Brian, excellent job. You did everything right out there. Thank you. My jaw almost fell open. Those were the last words I had expected to hear. I greatly admired Captain Phillips and had long since learned he always meant what he said. His words were never designed to make someone feel better. They were always designed to make a man a better officer and a better Marine. Always. His words eased the pain of the last seven days but did not erase the guilt that I felt. To this day, I question the decisions I made that night. That is the onus of command. You always bear the responsibility for those under you. When they suffer wounds or are killed by the enemy, it is impossible for an officer not to second-guess himself and own part of their suffering or deaths. As leaders, we understand control. That is where we operate. Having it is comfort. But combat and the enemy strips that away at times. Once the bullets fly and the violent chaos of a firefight reigns, control becomes an illusion. A platoon commander cannot determine which enemy bullets will strike what vehicles. He cannot select the moment when an insurgent triggers an IED. He cannot dictate who survives and who doesn't. All he can do is try and fight back to try and demolish the chaos with enough firepower that the enemy dies or runs away. Almost everything else is beyond the leader's control. Those limits of leadership were never drilled into us at the academy. When I experienced it for the first time during Operation Matador, I came gradually to understand on an intellectual level. But in my heart, I still wonder if I could have done something else that might have saved my Marines from harm. I still spend sleepless nights replaying every moment in my head, hoping men like Robert Gass and Jonathan Lowe can forgive me. All part of it, man. And I, it's, it's funny you read that passage. I was up last night, same thing. 2.45 in the morning and, and, and replaying it. And it, it's not something I would say there's a negative aspect. People will hear me say that and be like, oh, man, that's bad, you know, post-traumatic stress or something. No. It's, it's me being a human being who cares and wonders. And it's hard. That's never going to go away. And I'll always wonder that. 
you know, would it have been a better decision to take a left turn and, and abort the mission at that point? Should I have tried to get back to the bridge? Or if I'd have gone three blocks up, maybe there would have been a path we could have found and put our headlights on. There are so many what ifs, so many what ifs that, that you go through as leaders. And, and if, if you try to ignore those times where you spend those sleepless nights, and not think through it, I think it makes it worse. I think the fact that I'll go through the drill like last night, which is the first time in a long time that I did, um, I think part of it, because I knew we, we'd probably be talking about it. I, I think it's healthy to do that. For me, at least it has been. You know, it's healthy for me to replay that and to understand. And, and you know, you, you talked about that moment with my company commander, Ford Phillips. I remember that conversation. And I remember kind of going back at him a little bit and saying, you know, I just I think if I would have done this or done that, and he stopped me. Brian, listen, you did everything right. You did everything that you could do out there. And, and it was, you know, it was definitely what I needed to hear because we still had a long way to go in that deployment. And I still had to go do another one. It was, it was great leadership on his part because it, it gave me, there was no more second guessing at that point. You know, because it, it, that was not the time to sit there and start to question my decision and my instincts in battle that had served me well up until that point. I had a, uh, a similar conversation, as a matter of fact, with Leif. So, you know, when when Mark Lee got killed, it was uh, Ryan Job who ended up dying as well, but he had been severely wounded. And Leif was down at a combat outpost with his platoon, and we got... Ryan Job had been Kazavacked out, and now the guys are down at this combat outpost. And the Army, who the 137 um, Bulldogs, Bravo Company, who we had an amazing relationship with, Captain Mike Bahama, main gun Mike, they, they were out trying to, trying to get after it. And they got to a point where they said, hey, we think we know where these guys are that shot Ryan. Do you, can you guys help us? I mean, it was like the worst day of fighting. And Leif called me up on the on the radio and says, hey, w- w- I want to go back out. They think they know where these guys are. I want to go back out. And I was like, go, go get some. And he went out and, you know, they were under heavy fire. And, and that's when Mark got killed. And, you know, Leif was, you know, he, he was... You know the mission gets done and all that but next day Leif comes to me and he says um you know hey hey Jocko I'm you know he was tore up you know he was tore up his 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 friend his brother was was dead his other friend was severely wounded but what really got to him was Mark because you know he'd made this decision to go back out and he said to me you know I, I just don't know if I you know I don't know if I made the right decision and I said to I said to him Leif there was no decision to make. There was Americans out there fighting in the streets trying to get after these guys that had wounded one of your guys, one of our guys. And they thought they knew where he was and they thought you could go and get them. There's no decision to make. You don't even have a choice in that situation. You do what you do as an American, as a SEAL, as a frogman. There was no decision. You did what we do.
And I think that's something that any leader, when you get your young leaders out there, you know, obviously, if they screw something up, obviously, that's a different story. But, you know, you don't have the luxury of knowing what's going to happen in a combat situation. There's no crystal ball. There's no, you don't know. Like, what you just said, guys would say that stuff to me sometimes. Like, you could have gone left or right. Oh, really? Because if you could have gone left like you just talked about and hit a giant ID and now yep. everyone's dead. You could have gone straight and you could have gotten clear. You don't know. You don't have that luxury in combat. You're making decisions based on the information that you have at that time. You don't know all this other shit yet. Mm-mm. If you knew it, obviously looking back, hindsight's twenty twenty. We wouldn't have even gone there in the first place. But we don't know that. The only way to avoid any risk is not to go, is not to do your job, is to just go ahead and stand up, raise your hand, and say, I'm a coward. That's how you can avoid these situations. But guys in the Marine Corps, guys in the SEAL teams, they don't raise their hand and say that. They raise their hand and say, where's the bad guys? We're going to get them. And one of the mistakes you can make, too, is sometimes you want to stop and you want to think about it. Sometimes there is no right answer, right? There, there's a bunch of things you can do. There's a bunch of options, right. and whatever one you take and maintain tempo and achieve tempo and stay a step ahead of the enemy is the right one. It's yeah. how you execute it. Yeah. Either way, you could be going into into a bad day, but you better do it your way and on your terms. Yeah, one thing that's guaranteed to turn into a bad day is sitting there and not doing nothing. Absolutely. Because I'll tell you what, if you're not maneuvering, the enemy is maneuvering. They are. If you're not maneuvering, the enemy is absolutely maneuvering. They're getting, they're flanking you, they're getting a high ground, they're doing something. So you better just be in action, taking action, make a decision and go. Especially on their turf. Their yeah. turf, oh, yeah. their cities, their neighborhoods, they know every corner. We're guessing. So uh, now you come back, you, you, I'm, I'm fast forwarding to where you're now becoming a company, XO. I'm going to the book. Just after we deployed again in 2006, I was pulled from weapons company to become executive officer for India Company 3-2 Marines. It happened so fast, I didn't have time to get to know my new Marines before we ended up in country again. We deployed to Al-Ambar province to a fob near Habaniya. And this was cool because you were in Habaniya and I was 20 miles away in Ramadi in, in that summer of 2006. Next, my company lost four Marines killed. Lance Corporal Don Champ Champlin was our first. He was killed by a roadside bomb on the main road running through our area. That was the end of August of 2006. A month later, on the 24th, our company commander sent a platoon out after an insurgent who'd fired a rocket into one of our patrol bases. They'd gone out without a special device that blocked incoming cell phone signals and prevented insurgents from remotely detonating IEDs. Sure enough, the platoon got hit with a bomb. Blew Lance Corporal Rene Martinez 70 meters into the air. He died instantly. That one really hurt. I'd been on the base at the time. I took great pride in going out on patrols, not to ride herd on the platoon commanders, but to be there as an additional asset and to share the risks with my Marines. This time I'd been tied up and couldn't get out there with the men. When I heard what was happening, I grabbed a Humvee and raced to the scene. We carried Renee back to the morgue. Inside, I stood next to him, held his hand, and said my goodbyes. I will carry the guilt of that day for the rest of my life. I should have been out there with that platoon. We 
We kept taking casualties that fall. Even units just passing through our area got hit. One EOD rig got hit with a roadside bomb. Though the blast didn't destroy the armored Humvee, it set off a couple phosphorus-based incendiary grenades the EOD team had left on the floor of their rig. Before we could even get to them, the white-hot chemical fire melted them where they sat. The sight was indescribable. After that scene, morale in the company plummeted. The men questioned the mission. What was the point? We were getting shot at almost every day. Going into Habania to patrol was a daily nightmare of snipers, bombs, and ambushes. Half the time, we couldn't even fire back. The rules of engagement were so strict that if civilians were in the area, we could not engage the enemy. Since there were almost always civilians in the area, our Marines had to show incredible restraint even as they watched their brothers die. So you guys were wrapped. That, that ROE, ROE was tight. It was tough. I mean, it was... Habania had never been patrolled before. They had set up patrol bases, but they had never gone out and walked around. And, and they had, you know, the, the outgoing units said, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. But you had to. Yeah, you the had only to. way, the only way to defeat that enemy was to suffocate the area. And what mattered most were the people. If the people trusted us, they would feed us the information so we could capture the enemy. If the people trusted them because we wouldn't patrol and we were scared, then they would trust them and we would end up, we would end up not accomplishing our mission and it was it was so hard you know people have this idea that because you wear a certain rank everybody's going to listen <laughs> or it's hardcore leadership and, and they're not going to ask questions you know when i would go patrol base to patrol base and speak to my men and they would ask why why should i walk out there tomorrow you know we don't have CNN and and this general or the president talking to us, giving us this big, huge, hey, here's the ultimate game plan. We don't get any of that. I mean, my guys were showering once every 17, 18 days. That's it. We were living amongst the populace, amongst the enemy that was traveling all around the country coming in and, 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 and attacking us. And so it got really difficult. But the, the one thing that, that stuck with them, that they could understand, that at their perspective they got was, hey, look, if you quit on me, that's one less guy to man the post on top of this patrol base to keep this roadway clear. That's one less guy guarding Mikey's flank when you go on patrol and you've got three patrols tomorrow. We were already so thin at that time. Our battle space was way too big for us to truly suffocate it to make sure the enemy couldn't, couldn't come in and influence. Way too big. But as we got better, as we secured the area and we focused really on the main supply route and the economic parts of that, the shops, if we could secure the shops and secure the schools, because the kids couldn't go to school and the kids tried to go to school, Al-Qaeda killed the teachers. So now we secured the area enough that the two schools could open. When we were able to do that, then the shops opened up and the people could start living their lives again. That was one of the proudest days of my Marines' lives when those kids could walk to school again. These schools were corners blown up from IEDs, bullet holes in them, there were no roofs. I mean, they were, by our standards in America, you wouldn't be able to fathom what these looked like. They were basically concrete squares with, with really bad desks in them. The school supplies they had were given to them from us. And so that was a huge win for us. And at that time, was right around the same time of the surge. 
And when the surge took place, what happened was two Iraqi companies pushed west and were able to take up a quarter of our battle space, which then greatly allowed us. Now, now we've got enough people. Now we can really influence it. What happened were the Iraqi people, we would sit down and have dinner with them and bring them gifts and talk to them. I'd have meetings with them at two in the morning when they felt comfortable to speak to me. Now they're telling me who, where, what time, where can we get them? And when you've got Marines questioning the mission, then all of a sudden you deliver them some intel and say, hey, at 3 a.m., you're going to go find this person at this spot. This is what they look like. This is what they're called. Get them. And then they get excited. And I don't mean get them as in terms of, hey, they're going to go and they're, they're going to go kill that person. They're going to go capture them. And we had a whole process, a whole very frustrating. You had to literally, now, now my Marines are no longer infantrymen. Now they're also detectives. All right, so this is the intel package that led to this detention. Here's the paperwork for the detention. We deliver them to the detention center. If you don't hit every wicket right, that person's back on the streets in three days. So that was also detailed discipline and doing all the right things, but they did it. And I tell you, Ramadi, Habaniya, they were some of the worst areas in Iraq that fall. By Christmas time, yeah. it was amazing, the turnaround. It, it was incredible. They were quiet. Yep. They were quiet. It was, it was, you know. I left, I left October 21st, 2006. There was 30 to 50 enemy attacks a day while I was in deployment that six months. By January, there was like one or two enemy attacks a day. Down from 30 to 50. It was boom. It was incredible. Incredible Unbelievable. We, we left in February. February 2007. And, and. Speaking of coming home, 3rd Battalion, 2nd Marines came home in 2007 after suffering 15 killed in action. It could have been far worse for all of us if we hadn't seen any progress in Habania. That's what you're talking about. Then all those questions we had over the mission and its value would have returned home to term- torment us for years to come. In fact, we did see progress, and that made it a little easier to accept things. And... Um, yeah, that's that's basically what you just said, and and it, that's why you know you and I were talking about this on the way over. As as nice as it was that we got to see that happen, there was nothing more sickening to me than to have eight years later have the the black flag of ISIS flying over the city of Ramadi at the government center. That that it was just absolutely heinous to see that it didn't need to happen, and. You know, they actually took Ramadi back again through massive airstrike. And I was talking to one of my buddies that that was a JTAC that's actually coming on the podcast, Marine Corps JTAC, that I was talking to you about earlier. But he's, I was like, how many bombs did we drop in Ramadi while we were there? Because it was a populous city. There was normal Iraqis that wanted to live their lives. We weren't dropping bombs. He was like, I don't know, maybe a dozen, 15 in the second push in Ramadi that the Iraqis just did behind the strength of American firepower, you know how many air missions they did? They did 600 strike missions. <laughs> Have you seen pictures of Ramadi right now? Rubble. It's rubble. Now they're rebuilding it now, but it was just 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 rubble. And um, yeah, just it's so disheartening. Um, so you come home from that deployment and. It was pretty quickly after you got you got home that Travis got killed. 
Yeah. And, you know, I wanted to give a little credit here to the MIT teams because Travis was a MIT team, uh, which is military transition team, which was, okay, so I, I talk about this sometimes, right? So the SEALs and the special operations guys, a lot of times we live in relative comfort. Okay, so we live like, okay, we're pretty comfortable. You know, like I said, I had mats on deployment. I brought a GP medium tent to put mats in because I got to train some jujitsu. We have a nice weight room, you know, we and, and SEALs are super aggressive and crafty and figuring out like, okay, what can we do? How can we get this? We'll contractors and ordering stuff. And so we just make, we, we do a good job of building our infrastructure. And when I say infrastructure, I mean some, some comforts come with that, right? Now you go to the conventionals, take a step down because they're not getting as much leeway, they don't have as much, uh, they can't get away with as much, so they're living maybe a little bit harder, maybe even a lot harder than, and of course, hey, by the way, there's special operations guys that are living out in the sticks in Afghanistan with two of them, with you know 280 tribesmen, so I'm, I'm saying, I'm talking about my particular situation, which my particular situation was, in Iraq when I deployed there, we always lived good, always lived good. Conventionals? We'd go out to their outstations. We'd stop on a way to a mission. We'd stop by someone, you know, stop by wherever, some cop somewhere or some fob somewhere. Those guys are living rough. And I had SEALs. My SEALs that lived in Corregidor, they were living rough. But my point is, you go one step further, and now you get to what's called a MIT team. Yeah. And the MIT teams are embedded with Iraqi troops. And so they are living with Iraqi troops. There might be two, three, maybe four of them. And they're out there living with the Iraqi troops, counting on the security of the Iraqi forces to protect them. And I mean, it was horrible. When we first got to Ramadi, there was a, there was a VBIED attack that killed the oncoming MIT team commander and the outgoing MIT team commander. They were doing a turnover oh. at a station and uh, VBIED came, killed them both, wounded a bunch, but it's interesting because I didn't know Travis was a supply officer in the Marine Corps. And so so the the Marine Corps has this way of selecting where you where you get what you get to be in the Marine Corps as an officer. They take the class and chunk it up into thirds. And then the the each top third you get a pick and it goes down the list. So that way they don't have every single guy, all the best guys, quote unquote, going to be Marine Corps infantry or going to be a pilot. Mm-hmm. You you might be you might be the bottom the top of the bottom third in the class and you get your pick. Mm-hmm. So you don't. It doesn't matter how you perform. I mean, it matters, yeah. but out of it, a class of over two hundred, Travis mm-hmm. was seventeen in his class at the basic school, which is a very prestigious. To, be, to graduate in the top twenty-five is incredible. Yeah, and he got his third choice. His third. He's a logistics officer. He was furious. So he's angry, and then and the Marine Corps did this very very well they understood the importance of the mitt team so they really took great guys and sent them to the mitt teams and he so they they put up volunteers hey who wants who wants to raise your hand and go live amongst the Iraqis counting on them for security training them working with them eating their crappy food living without air conditioning I mean, it just sucks it it's just awful. sucks it's awful. awful of course what does Travis do oh, I'm game oh yeah <laughs> let's do this so he went, and uh, obviously he was he was he was killed in action. He was killed in action during a firefight, trying to like you just talked about. wasn't trying to save other Marines. He was trying to save his fellow Iraqi soldiers. And just like you just said, there's so many people that don't understand how closely we worked with Iraqi soldiers 
and how committed we were with helping them. So that's a classic example. And by the way, that that eulogy that he wrote for himself was this. Travis Mannion was a man unafraid to stand for what was right. I think that's something that anybody could aspire towards. And and actually another you know, you talked about the connections earlier. Well, there's a connection here that Travis's roommate in the Naval Academy was a guy by the name of Brendan Looney who did what you talked about, the painful way of getting to the SEAL teams. He went to the surface warfare community, then he got picked up for the SEAL teams, went through SEAL training, and he was also killed in Afghanistan in 21 September 2010. But you come home from that deployment, and now you've got, you're married, you got one daughter, you're expecting another daughter, and by the way, this whole time, like we talked about earlier, you've been fighting <laughs> MMA <laughs> training. You fought your first pro fight was between deployments. Yeah. And your your amateur fights we already talked about was before your first deployment. And you make a decision that, all right, you're going to get out of the Marine Corps. And obviously, this is probably the hardest decision you ever had to make at that point. You're brutal. Right. Brutal. But. It's 2007. How much are you were, were you thinking at that time? Like, hey, I'm gonna go for this MMA thing, and it's gonna it's gonna be. I got a shot at the at, at making it. You know, it was it was. I knew I had a shot at. You must have thought you had a shot because your ass was undefeated at this point. Oh you yeah, were knocking oh, people yeah, out. Yeah, of course. You were the man. The worst thing that could have happened, right? I mean, the worst <laughs> thing. I'm training with. So I would basically go around the base. And I found this corpsman with cauliflower ear. Hey, how'd you get that cauliflower <laughs> I uh, State champion at Oklahoma wrestling in high school. Boom. Be here 1800 every night. Got it? I'll bring you gear. Cool. He was in. And he then started training with us, started fighting. But I got a wrestler dude now, yeah, right? Yeah. Another cue to wrestle. Hey, you do jiu- you're a blue belt in jiu-jitsu? You're my instructor. Master. Yeah, yeah. He, was my, he was my master. <laughs> I had no striking coach. We had no pad work, no nothing. It was me... And, and, a, and a couple of Marines plus a corpsman. <laughs> and we would get after it every day. And then every time we fought, we won. Yeah. So we thought we really knew what we were doing. Yeah. And I would take leave. Every once in a while, I'd take leave. And I would go to Extreme Couture for yeah. a couple of days and get destroyed. Yeah. I went out to Temecula, to Dan Henderson's place. I'd go get destroyed. And I'd just try and learn two moves, right? Give me two moves. So here I am in the WEC. Again, Armbar from the mount, armbar from the guard, got those. I know what half guard is now. I can't, <laughs> can't sweep a soul from it, though. But Mola Wall showed me how to defend a single leg and a double leg when I was out of Temecula. So now I got that down pat, and I still got a mean jab cross hook. Away we go, baby. And, and I'm winning fights with these things. And, you know, I, I would end up losing the first time. At WC, and, and that would prompt me to to leave Georgia, go find somewhere to train. And I'll never forget my first training session at, at Jackson Winkle John Academy. And I'm there training, and Greg Jackson comes walking up to me after my first practice. And, and this is as polite as he could try to compliment me at the time. Brian, 
I'm so amazed at how far you've gone with how little information you've been given. <laughs> Code word. Wow, you suck. How the hell did you win all these fights? <laughs> it was, you know, one of the things I explained, I said, look, when you only know so much, right. you can fight 150 miles an hour because you're not thinking. Then all of a sudden, I'm learning all these new techniques. Then I started thinking. I had a, an up and down period there where win some, lose some. And I got to a point where after the Phil Davis fight, hey, you may be out of here. Mm-hmm. You know, the UFC wasn't a huge fan of me. They didn't really care. They didn't, you know, Joe Silva wasn't a huge fan of these WEC guys that were right. forced upon him. That wasn't a talent. He went and found it. And I told him I'd fought three times inside of six months. And I said, look, I need a break. And, and I literally looked at my MMA training like you would look at the training of a marine company. Mm-hmm. Where am I weak? How much time do I have? What am I going to schedule? What am I going to do? Who, do? who are the experts I can go to to get better in all these areas? And I approached it. I, I, I knew at that point, hey, look, I still had a full-time job. I never fought without one. Transitioned out of the Marine Corps, started working at a company called MedAssets. Met Assets had this this project, this thing. Hey, hire heroes. We want to help vets get jobs. Well, maybe you could lead that. Took that over. So I'm working every day, but at the same time, you know, I started this thing in MMA, and I can't go out like this. Too many people said I was going to wash out, that I was going to be exposed. Couldn't do it. No way. There were too many Marines at the time taking pride in my performances in there. And although I was older, you know, I'm 20, probably 29 at that time. So in terms of MMA age, I'm already, I'm green and I'm already kind of getting a little old, but I started to find a way, started to figure it out and, and, and not cutting any corners like other fighters were at the time, but starting to figure it out. And it all just came down to discipline where a lot of martial artists don't want to spend time. They don't want to spend 30 minutes drilling one move and understanding how they could use that move from various positions and why it works and how it plays into my style of fighting why it will be effective they want to drill that one move they want to do it five times and then they want to go live let's go live let's go Guilty. live yeah. <laughs> yeah and and i i had to learn at that point if i'm going to catch up with these fighters who are younger in many cases but much more experienced than me i have got I've got to take an analytical approach and an honest approach to my skill set and start to shore up some holes or else I'm going to continue to lose. You just practice just wrestling like crazy yeah. and then submission avoidance? It was, it was, I actually went and put a gi on for the first time ever. Oh, it was, yeah. is working some basics because everybody wanted to hold me down. If I could get out from underneath somebody with a gi on, it's going to be a heck of a lot easier. No gi. Truth. I was oh, bringing in wrestlers that were way above my, my level. A guy named Harry Lester who was, you know, an Olympian was coming in and throwing me all over the place. And so I was training wrestling nonstop. And then I, I would go and I'd go to Albuquerque. I didn't have a fight coming up, but I would go live in Albuquerque for two weeks at a time away from my family and help other guys in their training camps and get exposed and drill. And without, here was the other big part, was guys like Rashad Evans, Keith Jardine, Joey Villasenor, Nate Marquardt, without those guys, it would have never happened because after they would beat me, after they would pass my guard, take me down, hit me with this combination, they would stop afterwards and tell me how and why. And so I learned at a much faster rate than your typical fighter would because not only am I I'm drilling with some of the best in the world, taking the time to drill and taking an analytical approach. Hey, I know we're going to work this today, coach, but 
my butterfly guard is completely ineffective and I'd love to work it specifically, not just on sweeping because I don't think I'm going to get there yet against my level of competition. Just get up. I'd love to use it to get up or even just get to the fence where now I've got a third leg that I could utilize to get back up. And so we would drill specifics like that. And I've got these guys who have 30 plus fights who are champions now taking the time to help me which meant a lot to me. I'll never forget it. I mean, they were as much coaches to me as Mike Winklejohn and Greg Jackson were. You know, and then, you know, obviously on top, you could do all of that. The other piece of it was when I would do my camps there, when I really got where I was at my best, you know, when I beat Chris Liebens or Santiago, when I was beating those guys, mentally I was in the best place. My family was in it when it was in a great spot. They were my wife and kids were very supportive of me leaving and doing my camps in Albuquerque and my time away from them. It made me nasty. They'd come visit, but man, I would literally look at my opponent like you're the one who kept me away from my family this long. You're gonna pay for it. And and it was it was a strong motivator. And and that if you're in a place as a fighter where you're not hungry, getting new information. Being able to mentally be in the right place for you to perform. Because it's not about who the better fighter is. It has nothing to do with it. It's about who fights best that night. And if you can't mentally be in the state where you're going to fight best that night, you got a problem and you're in the wrong place. And that 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 phase of my career, that's when I was I was there. I was able to do that. And that was, that was when I was at my best for sure. Yeah, I mean, you had some stunning fights. I know I always tell, you know, sometimes my fighters will say, oh, you know, I'm not, I'm not feeling it tonight. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You ha- like this is in training. I'll say, look, it doesn't matter how you feel tonight, because fight night comes. You might be feeling good, bad. Doesn't matter. What you have to do is perform right now. That's what you got to do. So train yourself to perform right now. But yeah, you had some. Uh, you had some great fights. Um, and Chris Lieben, who I, I know trained with, Chris is a great guy. And but that, and he's such a tough bastard. Oh. And you guys threw down. Yeah, we knew. We knew neither one of us were going to be that hard to hit. Um, <laughs> but, but uh, no, tons of respect for that guy, and that was a fight he didn't have to take. Yeah, you know, I I saw an opening there where there was a window, and and he may just take me as a as a fight to okay, let me go get a win, get some money, right. and and go on because he had just come off two huge wins in like a week, yeah, or in ten days He's notice. A psycho, and so <laughs> I uh, love him. Phenomenal guy in this sport, and. Yeah, you know, it, it was a wild ride. I, I, and when I look back on it, there's there's definitely some regrets, like anybody. You know, there, there's some things you wish you wish you could have done. Um, some things that happened family-wise that certainly stalled and, and, and helped aid the decision to stop. You know, my, my wife losing, losing her little brother to suicide was a really tough thing. Her mom was living with us at the time. So, you know, us going through that tragedy together, it's, it's hard. We, we're human beings, and a lot of fighters have to deal with tragedy and compete. This is what we do for a living. We've right. got to fight through it. It's a hard thing. When I look back on it, where I know I was as an athlete and as a mixed martial arts, how green I was to have come that far and been a legitimate top 10 middleweight at that time, I'm proud of that. Especially <laughs> in the right. era especially in the era when I fought, where, yeah. where there was some extracurricular activities for going sure. on as You're well. You were fighting against guys that were, a lot of guys were on, uh, were on steroids. Yeah. There was no testing, or there was really limited testing. It was an IQ yeah. test, right? If you failed that, you, <laughs> you, know, you, were, just, you were just straight up dumb. Uh, but it was fun. And and you, I mean, the guys, you, like, you lost to Chael Sonnen, yeah. right? Who was two minutes from being the, the, the middleweight champion in the world against Anderson Silva. Uh, 
you know, you, you lost to him, you beat Sakara, then you lost to Bisbing, who actually is the current middleweight champion. So the guys that beat you were badasses. Yeah, absolutely. And you were a guy that like started fighting three weeks ago. <laughs> you know, that's just awesome, man. It's a testament. The, you know, the coolest part about it was was during that time, you know, and, and it kind of happened subtly beneath that, you know, at least to the fight fans, was was taking that that little Higher Heroes USA project that that company, Met Assets, asked me to watch over, right? Step one was, was starting to build some programs. Step two was getting one of my best friends in the world who served with me, who was right next to that track as it burned, mm. Nate Smith, to come in, be my chief operating officer, and build this amazing team and leveraging some of the media attention I got for fighting, leveraging it for our cause and building it. And, and not just building a company where, hey, we went out, we fundraised for a mission. No, that's bogus. We were out there accomplishing the mission, helping veterans get legitimate jobs, careers, so that they can succeed and lead again back here home and in their communities and watching it grow from a team of five to a team of 10 to a team of 20 to where now we've got 96 full-time employees. And we're, we're bringing in over 300 veterans and spouses a week into the program. That's awesome. That, that was all built with this amazing team of people while I was still fighting. That, that was my full-time job doing that and, and having a board of directors that had the foresight and, and, and the perspective to say, hey, you know what? Yes, you're going to be a little limited during some of these training camps, but what you're able to bring to our brand is helpful right now in the phase that this company is. And, and it's been a wild and really amazing ride and, and some of the things we talked about earlier where you have these things these questions that will always haunt you about the loss of your friends the loss of your marines the loss of your seals when you can lead an initiative like that it helps you feel like hey you know what i am i am taking advantage of every day every day we're moving forward we're achieving we're helping other warriors now find success post military service and and that's me earning it my earning my day where they don't, they no longer have any. You know, Travis Manion doesn't live anymore, and his family would give anything to see him one more time. I can't bring him back, but I'll tell you what: if I sat here crying about it, feeling sorry for myself that my friend Travis was gone, he'd be the first to slap the hell out of me when I die for it, or at least do a double leg on your ass. Oh, <laughs> he was—I'm telling you, man—and that—that was he planned on fighting when he got done with no, that I'm deployment. Sure he he, he'd still be fighting to this day. He was a bad, bad dude. And that was your your last fight in the UFC, and you, you retired after you fought Vandalay Silva. Which did you plan? <laughs> no, to do that. So those of you that don't know that aren't in MMA, there's a guy, a legendary mixed martial artist named Vandalay Silva. I saw him fight a few times in Japan back in the back in the day, and he's a, he's a brawler, and he's incredible punching power. And his nickname is the Axe Murderer because he looks like a psycho. And uh, anyways, Brian had a fight with him. And these two guys went in there. It was like Russian roulette. It was a street Just, fight. It was a street, <laughs> street fight. fight. It was a street fight. And eventually you got caught, you know, got caught by one of the best strikers that, that have ever been in the game. And, um, and, that. and, and by the way. You dropped him a couple times. You you had that. I mean, you didn't have it won, but you definitely 
You dropped him two or three times in the first round or he, twice he, in the first round? He came round? back from the dead yeah. a minimum of two times. Yeah. The eyes were in the back of his head, and then he just he looked at me again with bloodshot eyes. It was it was unbelievable. Unbelievable. But no, that was not the plan. And <laughs> so the, the you, plan, were with, you were with Greg Jackson and Wink, right? Uh I wasn't. I so uh, for the the Sakara, Bisbing, and Vanderlei fight, I trained myself. And the reason being was uh, right after I'd fought Chael Sonnen, two days before Christmas, me and my wife land in baggage claim, and I get a call. And, and her little brother, who had struggled with bipolar uh, disorder and, and depression, and we didn't know that then, right. right? He had taken his own life, went up to a cabin in the middle of the woods and taken his own life and had to tell my wife they're in baggage claim. And, and her mom at the time was living with us. It was personal life was a mess. Still got to pay bills though, right? Still, still got a company to run. Still got a fight career that I've got to push through. And, and I can't just, Hey, look, I'm going to take seven months off here to get through this because I got bills to pay. Anyways, it, it, it caused me to start my own camp. So the, the game plan going in was, Hey, we're going to, we're going to take Vanderlei down a little bit in this fight and disrupt him. Really, really confuse him because nobody's, nobody's used to me doing that. Yeah. And so I fly to Japan. We get off the plane of that long flight after a long training camp where I absolutely overtrained. And we get to the hotel and 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 me and one of my striking coaches, Manu Natal, we go start hitting pads. We're hitting pads. And pad work's done. And oh man, all of a sudden I start to cool down. I can't lift my knee up on my left leg. Tear something in my hip. Yeah. And it happens, right? I yeah. mean, yeah. Vanderlei could have walked in there with how many miles he could have walked in a couple injuries. So anyways, now this gets into my head a little bit and... So I asked to see the UFC doctor. And so and he, as soon as he landed, he was told, hey, you, you got to go see Brian Stannis. Hey, look, I've looked at all the stuff. Novocaine is legal. I just want to get Novocaine for fight night so I won't feel it. And I'm walking around the hotel and I'm trying not to show anybody that I'm limping at the press conference because I have a legitimate limp. And anyways, he's like, okay, we should, we're in Japan. We're not in a second or third world country. We're in Tokyo, right? I could have walked across the street and probably gotten lidocaine. Anyways, supposed to get it, supposed to get it, supposed to, I'm going to get it, I'm going to get it, I'm going to get it, doesn't get it. When, when you fight in Japan, the fight's so that they could cater the American TV yeah, audience, you leave time. at like 7 a.m. Mm-hmm. So he's sitting there, sorry. So I let that affect me too much mentally. And, and we're trying to warm up backstage and I'm trying to shoot some double legs and I, I'm not feeling it. And in my own head, right before I walk, I'm like, you know what? This dude's got some miles on him. I hit like a truck. Let's get in there. Let's knock this dude out and let's get this fight over with. So ready to go, walk out there, and he tags me first. He hits me behind the ear, and, and you know most of Vanderlei's fights, he's he's a little bit more of an accumulation guy. He's right. not considered a one punch knockout guy. This one right hand he hits me with, I had never been rocked in the octagon before in my life, and he dropped me. So I was like, all right, it's on, let's go. And so then I rock him, and once I rocked him, then I thought, okay. One more good shot on the chin, and he's done. And I, I landed it, and he'd go down, and then he'd come back. And I'm like, wait a minute here. And so I'm just caught up. And so the second round, I start to get a little bit more technical and move around a little bit. Like, all right, he's obviously not going away. I've got to take a different approach. I don't know what this guy's made of. And, and then he, I, I, didn't even, I don't remember yeah, it. You you know? I get caught with that huge punch. don't remember any of it. And it's crazy, but I realized I lost. I came to as John Anik, who's one of my closest friends now, comes up to me with a microphone. And I, I realized, well, I don't remember winning. 
So I must have lost this fight. Oh, man. <laughs> and it was a horrible flight home. I'm sitting there flying home, and I had a Jack and Coke in my hand. Couldn't sleep at all. Didn't sleep, and I am miserable. I lost to a guy I was supposed to beat who was supposed to be washed up. You know, I had pretty much made the decision then, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm out. It's over. If, if you're not going to get busy being the champion, then there's other areas where that need my attention more from my family right. to the company I'm trying to run. And it was a hard decision. And, and part of me, when I made the decision, thought for sure, oh, I'm definitely going to come back, right? I'm, I'm going to come back. And for like two years, I held on to that and had to fight against it. Like, no, it is not in your best interest to come back anymore. It's in your, you, you do a better job talking about on the microphone than you're going to do strapping the gloves on anymore, pal. You're 35, now I'm 36. It's over. That makes me feel real good over here. <laughs> so, hey, you know, we've been going for a while. Tell us about, like, specifically with with Higher Heroes, What? how can people support that? Where do we look for it? All that stuff Absolutely. so that way people have information on it. Yes, we've got a website, higherheroesusa.org. And, and if you are a service member or a spouse who needs help finding a career, if you're unemployed or underemployed, you go on there, you register, and we'll get you your personal veteran transition specialist, fancy term for a job coach. And we'll take you through the whole thing from revising your resume uh, to teach you how to effectively do a job search, how to interview for a job. We will help you, if not build your LinkedIn site for you, teach you how to use that to impact and expand your network. Do social media audits. Hey, what pictures and posts should you not have up on Facebook right now? You know, take a look. Hey, no, big papa pump at Yahoo is not your email anymore. <laughs> it's going to be Christina Smith at yahoo.com. All right. All the do's and the don'ts, but then we have a job board with a lot of corporate partners will match you to all those companies. But we So do- so people if people want to hire a veteran, they can Absolutely. go through you as well. Because we that's the one thing I get hit with a lot is you know, people say, how can we help veterans? And I say, hire veterans. And they say, where do we find them? So now we got a good place to Absolutely. find them. Absolutely. I mean, we're bringing in over 300 people a week into the program who are all going to get one-on-one assistance. And, and different from any other nonprofit, everything we do is tracked, logged, and analyzed in Salesforce so that we can hold ourselves accountable. I can hold every one of my employees accountable for the workload they have. They all have weekly, monthly, quarterly, and annual metrics that they have to hit. They don't hit them. They no longer work here. We run this nonprofit like a business because people donate money to us to help veterans find careers, period. And if we're not doing that, then we go away. And I take that very serious, and it's what's allowed us to grow from a team of four to now a team of 96. And we'll continue to do so. And my main mission now is to make sure Higher Heroes USA is there for the next generation of combat veterans as well. When they return home to a society that doesn't understand them as much. And, And the real help, the real need is for the veteran to learn how to communicate their skill set, how to deliver their value proposition. It's a hard thing to do. Think about your SEALs when they got out. If they yeah. went to a job or tried to write a resume, yeah. what the hell do I put? My first yeah. resume looked like I was trying to get a job as a mercenary. <laughs> it was off. And I was a Naval Academy grad. Imagine these young sailors, you know? Yeah. And, and with over 80% of the people we help at Hire Heroes are your young enlisted service members, the ones who need us the most. Awesome. Awesome. And then you got the Guardian Project going on. Incredible project. And I'd love to, to, to get these guys down. Ben Kovacs, who's our executive director, come down and be on your show someday. It's, it's so in line with some of your beliefs on martial arts and jiu-jitsu. Ben has a vision that every kid should have the opportunity to train martial arts. Every child. Check. And, and so 
He went out, networked, and found a man by the name of Joe Lunnenfeld, who's on my board at Higher Heroes, who's an executive at Twitter, and they bought a property in Oakland where there are a lot of young men and women who don't have much going on after school. And they don't, they, the, the chips are stacked against them. Yeah, there's not a whole lot that they have. You know, their families have a hard time making money and there's a lot of trouble they can get into. And they go find them and they bring them in and they come, they train martial arts, they train jujitsu, they train boxing, they do their homework. Awesome. Then they've networked with local restaurants and they get a healthy meal afterwards for free. Damn. In many yeah. cases, these are the, this is the, health, the only healthy meal that that young man or woman's gonna get that day. They have regular members to the gym, but those members pay a membership fee that also then pays for those young kids so that they can come for free. Mm. People buy a gi for themselves, then they get a free gi for one of the kids. I've gone there and taught and ran some classes, and it is just, it's incredible to meet these young men and women who, who haven't been given much in life. Their parents are grateful because now they're not paying for after school care. They can't afford it anyways, and their kids are not wandering the streets. Right. But now they've got this place to go to where there's like-minded people pushing them to do better. Don't allow your circumstances to direct and direct your life and tell you who you're gonna be. Nothing should hold you back. So the discipline that they're learning now, the camaraderie, the character they're learning at Guardian is starting to spill into the other aspects of their life. No their doubt. grades are going up. They're being more nutritious. They're focused on their future. They're, hey, wait a minute, college? I can go, I can go to college? They've got these great positive inspirations around them. And the goal is to take Guardian from Oakland and start to, to, to brand it and get it in gyms across the country. Where now we don't need a physical facility to do it. And other gyms can take on the program where now we've got a system where they can adopt it and people can pay their membership as part of a way of paying the membership for these underprivileged kids to go there and train after school as well so that they can have a chance. Just because they're poor doesn't mean they shouldn't get the opportunity to train jujitsu, to train boxing, to get all the character development that goes along with martial arts. Yeah, that's all I got. I actually, I got another book coming out and the book is called The Way of the Warrior Kid and it's a kid's book and it's basically about a young kid who's getting picked on at school. He can't do any pull-ups. He... He doesn't know his times tables and is basically miserable, right? And anyways, school ends and his Uncle Jake comes out to stay with him for the summer. Uncle Jake is a team guy. So Uncle Jake says, oh, you got some issues? What are the issues? Oh, I can't do pull-ups. He goes, all right, we can fix all those things. So one of the, you know, obviously gets him working out. Oh, you're getting bullied because he's getting bullied badly? Well, guess what he's going to learn? He's going to learn jujitsu. So... I honestly think there's going to be a little bit of a surge of jujitsu in America. <laughs> I love it, and it I sounds like it. this is right up right up that alley. It is. I'm, you know, when when that comes out, we're going to grab a bunch of them, make it mandatory for these kids. Things like that inspire them. I mean, they make a difference when you look at the just the social and the economic impact. Young man or woman who has a high likelihood of probably getting arrested, especially when you look at some of the the, the problems we have with our criminal justice system, right? Now instead they have a positive environment. Never get they go into college and they go get a great job and they're contributing. They're winning now. Yep. Huge impact for our country, for our communities to do that and, and to get more jujitsu, more martial arts in some of these these poor, super rural areas in our country where there's extreme poverty and our super urban areas where right. there's extreme poverty, where these young men and women don't get that opportunity because their parents can't pay $150 a month for them to go. And they don't have any positive influences in their life. Man, that if that that can fix a lot of problems that we have going on 
in our country. There's no doubt. Does is there a way to help the Guardian Project Absolutely. right now? Go to go to guardianproject.org. There's a website right there. You could become a monthly sponsor. I mean, that organization is 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 in startup phase. If someone could give five to ten dollars a month to them, that is a huge portion of a young man or woman's monthly membership right. for them to go to that gym, get a free meal, have someone looking at their report card, tutoring them in math, teaching them jujitsu confidence i mean we got young ladies in there and, and, and they're in there their confidence when they start dating and who they choose and how they, i mean the, the way they're going to approach life these young men and understanding how to respect and train with the young lady hey i'm going to grapple with you this round and how to respect you all i mean it's it's amazing to watch what's happening at a young age and how quickly they're developing it's awesome that's awesome so hire heroes the guardian project organizations to support and I guess that kind of wraps it with us if anybody wanted to support this podcast echo Charles I have a question oh echo comes with a deep question got a question kind of deep so when you watch a few good men are you like on the side of the Marines like the whole movie (laughs) see what I'm saying don't group me with them just because I wear the same uniform. Yeah, but you know, a few good men. He's going against the Navy. Tom Cruise, the Navy guy. Dude, not he's not a SEAL, be. but you know. So I, I am. When I watch a few good men, I am with the Marines all the way up until they break their integrity. All right, which it's right. a movie, right? Right. But but under no circumstances should we break our integrity, and and that that's a problem. You know, that's it's so false. No colonel would tell someone one thing, then tell this junior guy over here, no, you go right. do this and then lie about it and try and cover up. Right. The but, big uh, cover up. Yeah. The big cover up. Remember? But Again. when they break their integrity, that's I don't I don't care what uniform you're wearing, that that's a problem. Or if you're not wearing a uniform at all. Absolutely. We true. just talked about that on the last podcast. Maintain the integrity. It's true. Oh. Follow up question. Is there such thing as a code red? No. Okay. There's no such thing that's as what a code I thought. red. Anyway, so support. Right? We can talk about that if you guys like. Cool. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Right on. All right, well, uh, and let's do it fast. <laughs> All right, we'll speed it up here. Let's talk about on it supplements. I worked out today, as you probably can tell. Yeah, you look like the you pump is out. on. It's, it's there. So on. Um, the name of the pre workout is Total Strength and Performance. I left out the strength in there. Okay. So you perform good and you're strong. Anyway, if you want 10% off on it stuff, Shroom Tech, Alpha Brain. Total strengthening performance. Go to onit.com slash krill Jocko. Oil. You, krill threat, oil. you threatened me with a krill oil rage today. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause yeah. So that's another story right there. Anyway, onit.com slash Jocko. That's for 10% off. Best supplements in the world. Approved. 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 Boom. Um, also, if you shop at Amazon, buy duct tape, whatever, um, or the books right. that we talk about. Um, Heart for the fight. You better order this one quick because I don't think it's in print right now. And my, bought, my mom bought all five copies. <laughs> my mother bought. I can't believe you got one. She must have resold that on eBay and didn't realize she sent it to you. Yeah. So yeah, books. it is on Amazon though, and you can buy it. And yeah. You should. And in Absolutely. the event of you doing that or buying anything else, um, and you want to support the podcast, by the way, click through the jocklepodcast.com website. Or Jocko Store website. So click on the little Amazon banner. Boom. Then do your shopping. Then get the book. Or whatever else you get. Um, And you can support that way. That's a good way. That's like small action, big result. 
like sodium in a in a fish tank is what we say you know that's what deal. you say we, we come on bro say we say it we say it. it's all good anyway um and then you know subscribe to the podcast on itunes and stitcher and google play if you haven't already seems obvious but you know do that if you haven't and then you know write a review if you're in the mood and you're in the mood to support the podcast also youtube we're putting out more videos now i noticed that shorter videos jocko good that's one of the the og videos that was a good one though by the way um i thought i thought it was good uh subscribe yeah youtube if you like those videos if you like little jocko mcnuggets rather than the whole podcast all at once shareable right i say hey brian stan watch this video real quick it's two hours long you're not watching it real quick three minutes long you might watch that one real quick absolutely same thing exactly right the same thing so that's what we're doing now if you didn't know so yeah subscribe to that if you want um you know you want to be updated on that also jocko has a store it's called jocko store JockoStore.com. We think of original names like yeah. that. Around yeah, here. simple. But you <laughs> when know, you've got a sticks. cool name like Jocko. Why change it up? <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, it's perfect. And you know, there's some shirts on there. You know, if you want to kind of get after it that way, get yourself a shirt. That's kind of you know, you're wearing shirts anyway. I figure. Right. Yeah. Why not wear a Jocko shirt? Right. And so you, you got to wear yes. one anyways. Yeah, right. Exactly. Right. I agree with you. I, I agree know, with I, you. Exactly. Right. And they're good. We kind of went is this, out. My is way. This has to be one. The this discipline is equals freedom. Yeah. Discipline that, equals see, freedom. That's an awesome shirt. There you go. See, that approved. is an awesome shirt. Brian yeah. Stanoff approved. There's a lot and, of people uh, wearing those shirts. It's pretty legit. Yeah. There's an. I'll show you some. And you know what? You just don't want to wear the shirt. You want to go ahead and live the life. Live you the better, life. You better live represent. Discipline yeah. life. If you're going to do that, don't yeah. wake up at 1030 in the morning and roll out of bed. On a, no, no, no. Yeah, better go yeah. accomplish something. Get in the game. Yes. <laughs> yep. Very well put. Yes. Um, so, yeah, check out those shirts. I'm not saying buy a shirt. I'm saying, I'm not sitting here and saying buy a shirt. I'm saying go on the, go on the website, jockstore.com. Look at the shirts. If you like the shirts and you want to support the podcast, get a shirt. It's on you. Um, there's some rash guards in there, so you can, you know, some some physical activity, grappling, surfing, cro- anything that you know, anything that you do a lot of physical activity, you need range of motion. Rash guards, good. Hoodies, good. Patches, good. Regulation size or not regulations, good. All good. Anyway, what about out. these mugs? These mugs better be on there. Oh yeah, the mugs. Oh, unfortunately, uh, I got a bunch of them made, and we sold them on Amazon. And we had a bunch in stock, and then Joe Rogan posted a picture of his, and then they were yeah. all gone. Then they're out of stock. I was going to say it movie. had to be, yeah. I got uh, more coming. And, uh, yeah, the got black, more coming. The Matt Black. Like early March, I think. I, I had tweeted out before we started the show, just just showed the desk with all the weapons on it. The amount of testosterone and jawline in here is maximum capacity. Between us and it, there's 30 feet of jawline running through this office right now. Uh, yeah. But yeah, those I think what March right too it was like I think early March yeah, I think February, they'll be available March or something like that. And still working on the international for the mugs, right? Yeah, probably. So hey, we're gonna make that happen. So um, stand by for that. Uh, also, okay, psychological warfare. I I like to feel sometimes I don't need this anymore. I'm over it. But if you do need psychological warfare, okay, here's what it is. You ever have those days where you're like uh, you're about to work out or you have planned to work out and you're like, you know, maybe I'll just work out tomorrow. Everybody has. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yes. So what you do is you get this album that we we put together. Well, it's Jocko talking. <laughs> I just kind of recorded it. But 
like he's, I said, Echo presses record better yeah. than anybody. <laughs> yeah, better than it's true. It's absolutely true. Put it on iTunes. You can get like a track. Like if your thing is like I eat donuts way too much, and you're like I'm gonna fight the donuts or whatever, you can just get that track. It's called what? Sugar coated lies. That's what for it's example. Called. Is it just Jocko's voice telling you at why you? not to eat the donut? Yeah, I love this. Yeah, essentially, don't actually yell. Great. Yeah, yeah, I don't actually yell. You don't need to. Your voice no. is so stern and intense. It <laughs> doesn't matter. Absolutely right. Yeah, no. it's it's like Batman. Yeah. Right. No. Christian Bale Batman. Well, Christian. Bale. Don't eat the donut. That's more Leif. Leif, Leif has is the Batman, Batman voice. You're kind of like... Um, I don't know who I'm like. I don't know. The Joker or something. I don't know. Either way, there's a bunch of them, though. It's cool like to, to awesome. wake up in the morning. With, anyway, it's good, man. It helps. It helps a lot, It's actually. been very well received. I think Surprisingly. So. Yeah. I was kind of surprised. Yeah. Because so Echo thought it was a good idea. <laughs> no, man. People need this. I'm like, people need two minutes of me talking about donuts? I need it. That's what <laughs> I'm saying. I need to go work out. But I what's crazy is people post it. and send me and like, there's no way I can sleep through. Because one you of can't. them, the first yeah. track is called Wake Up and Get After It. Because mm-hmm. I, f- I think that really one of the easiest ways to start developing discipline in your life is to wake up early in the morning. So the first track is wake up and get after it. And yep. I actually do a, a count to 10. Yep. Give you the opportunity, 10 seconds, Fair to enough. get out of bed. Mm-hmm. If not out of bed by then, we got issues. But <laughs> 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 the crazy, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's fun. Uh, anything else? Along with that, if you want to get some Jocko White tea, yeah, it's available. It's available and in stock on Amazon. And you know, so. before I was hesitant, because at one time I said, hey, we'll never sell out of it again. <laughs> And everybody that listened to this podcast bought it that day. We sold out in get 15 out minutes. Because we sold out the first Man. time. And then I said, no, I'm just going to get a ton. And I said, don't worry, guys. We'll never sell out again. Yeah, we sold out again. Dang. Now, I'm feeling pretty confident that we won't sell out again. <laughs> that means I went kind of Richter. That's what we're, I, we're hoping. I over-engineered the whole thing. So okay. we shouldn't sell out of Jocko White Tea again. You can get it on Amazon.com. International orders. Check eBay. When you're clicking on Amazon, get this book right here by Brian Stan, Heart for the Fight. You heard him talking about it tonight. I covered a tiny portion of the book. Uh, Great information about combat, about leadership, and about life. Definitely check it out. I'll put it on the website. Yeah, it'll be on the website. For easy access, you know, boom. It'll be on the website. And also, we were just talking about this. Got that kid's book coming out. Uncle Jake teaching young Mark. How to be a warrior kid instead of a wimpy kid. Jiu-jitsu? Yeah. Pull-ups? Yeah. Studying? Yes. Being disciplined? Yes. Basically getting after it? Affirmative. Age 10. Pre-order it now. Why not? If you like this podcast, 100% you will like this book. I don't care if you're 49 years old. You will dig this book. I dig this book. (laughs) I wrote it. And I like it. I like to read it. My nine-year-old daughter's reading it. Oh yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it's good. I'll, I'll put. I'll I'll leave it at that. And I'm not a person to sit here and say like, oh, what I did is really good. I don't do that. <laughs> I like this book a lot. Yep. What you did is really good. Yeah. Uh, also, Leif and I wrote that book right there. The book called Extreme Ownership. You can get it. We talk about war. And we talk about leadership and we talk about war. You know, what else would we talk about? Get the right one, not one of the spinoffs. Not <laughs> yeah, one of the fakers. Right? Dang. Uh, lastly, Extreme Ownership Muster, May 4th and 5th at the Marriott Marquis in New York City. 
Extreme Ownership Mustard, number two, by the way. Number one already happened in San Diego. It was awesome. This one's gonna be awesome. By the way, I haven't said this yet about Extreme Ownership Mustard two. We will be there. True. I will be there. Echo Charles will be there. We will not be backstage. We will be, there is no backstage. We will be up front. I will be sitting at your table. We will be talking about things. JP Dinell is gonna be there as well. He's gonna come and get some. So come on out to that May 4th and 5th. There's a video coming out about it soon. I warn you that when the video comes out, it's gonna sell out because Echo Charles makes these videos so persuasive sure. that everyone's gonna come. And while you're waiting for the mustard, you can still carry on this conversation with us on the interwebs, yeah. on Twitter, on Instagram, and when you're gonna look at that Facebooky boha, we're gonna be on that one too. So Echo is at Echo Charles. I am at Jocko Willink, and Brian Stan is at Brian Stan. I keep it simple. I like yeah. how you do it. Two N's on Stan, by the way. Echo Charles, you got any clothing thoughts? That's it, man, my man. Good to meet you and have you, for sure. Mr. Brian Stan, pleasure, any closing guys. thoughts? Hey, pleasure and honor. Thank you so much for having me on. We, I know we've been trying to do this for probably over a year now. Well worth it, and uh, you've got a new subscriber. I've got to listen to more of this. I mean, we talk about a lot of things that we think we already know, yep. but man, it's motivating, though, when you continue to hear it, you continue to hear it, and you hear like-minded people out there achieving. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for coming on. Mm-hmm. And I would like to thank everyone for listening, and we appreciate the support and the fact, more so the fact that you are out there with us trying to get better. And for those of you with a uniform on, especially those overseas right now, taking the fight to the enemy, thank you all for keeping us free. To law enforcement and firefighters, thanks to you for keeping us safe. For those of you that are just out there on the grind, working hard and doing good work, go ahead and keep doing that good work. And Brian, thanks for coming on. Thanks for your career in the Octagon. Thanks for what you're doing now with the charity and helping vets. But most of all, thanks for your service to this great nation. And to your fellow Marines, who I was always humbled to serve alongside Thanks to you, you proud leathernecks for your service and sacrifice and forever upholding your motto, Semper Fidelis, always faithful. And when we go forward, each of us, all of us, when we go forward in our lives, Let us do so with the intention of honoring those brave souls, those soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines who stood and held the line and gave their last full measure for us. 
So until next time, this is Brian and Echo and Jocko. Out. <laughs>